thing in wrestling spreading dna around this week and joey ryan isn't tall enough to run the rides it's the what in the wide wide world of sports is going on edition of the jim Cornette experience and to join me hawaiian brian the podcasting lion the king of the arcadian vanguard podcast network mr co-host to you he's the owner and operator of six flags over wall street the great brian last everybody aloha jim a pleasure to be here once again and I've taken a step up from the French Toast Chateau with my new amusement park. Come check it out. It's, it's amazing you can actually jump out of the same windows that the stockbrokers <laughs> did in 1929. But you have Except a parachute they, on, so you don't die. Well, the, but the bungee cord, who measures those bungee cords when they stretch like that? I'm like, who, who just makes sure that the 280-pound guy diving headfirst off a bridge into a goddamn dry riverbed isn't going to stretch that rubber band out just three feet too far. What do you think? We have some great characters that walk the grounds. We have a giant uh, stuffed Alan Greenspan that you <laughs> kick and throw things at if you want. <laughs> it's wonderful. Come to Six Flags over Wall Street. Do you have Jim Cramer in a dunking booth? Oh, a firing squad. You, you, get, you get him. The fucking clown of the market. No, we don't have anything with him. Whoever wins the most tickets at skee-ball can be the one to tie the blindfold around Kramer and stick the cigarette in his mouth. And that's how he picks his stocks, actually. You tie a blindfold <laughs> around him, put a cigarette in his mouth, it just points to something, and that's what he anoints all of a sudden. Clown. Uh, all right, well, I got a wildlife update here uh, at the top of the program. We've been giving you minute-by-minute, blow-by-blow descriptions of what's going on with my battle with the wildlife here. I'm trying to protect some. I'm trying to lose others. It depends on whether they're doing damage or not. We've had the pesky raccoons. The pesky raccoons have been tearing up the sod, but I'll be glad to report to you, Brian, that on the positive side, the baby deer continues to be a joy around here. Just the cutest thing. And every morning I get up, I look at now, the baby deer's little resting spot, because, you know, the baby deers, they stay where they're supposed to stay, and the mama goes off and does what mamas do, and then come back and gets them later on. You never know. You think they've been abandoned, but it's not true. They've got some kind of radar they do. So the baby deer sits down there by the fence in the front corner of the, of the property and just looks cute all day. And the, the cars are going by on the road on the other side of the fence. They don't know that this little bundle of joyous wildlife is sitting there being all cute. And he's still not uh, big enough to jump the fence. So we're keeping the gate closed, keeping him in on the, on the safe side. But the baby, and there's two adults. So I don't know which one is the mother, but there's two adults with him at, at some cases. And I know, Brian, you will be happy to know I got two baby rabbits instead of the, I've seen two of them together. Now we've got a rabbit family in underneath the evergreen bushes down at the other end of the house. And they pop out in the evening times and they're, they're just as the size of hardly bigger than chipmunks. 
Just the oh. cutest little thing. You know what not enough people say? Rabbits what? are dirty and disgusting. What? Filthy What's animals. the matter with Keep you? them away from me. What are you talking else. about? Little, little People try to drive Oswald? home and they're hopping in the middle of the street. Get the fuck out of the street and no, stay off my property. Just, they're trying to go from one place to another and they don't have a rabbit crosswalk. That's a, a failing of the min, municipal fucking or, ordinances. Oh, they drive Swami crazy. That ain't cool either. Why, Harley loves the little rabbits. They just sit and look at each other and just and just make their little noses wiggle at each other. And rabbits are, are cute. A little Oswald, little Br'er. I can't get over the interaction you have with animals down there, considering what we have up here. I do everything I can to avoid these fucking things. No, I... You're out there feeding the deer and petting the rabbits, and I don't know what else. You're going to get a llama soon? I, mean, I, just dumped, I just dumped 120 pounds of feed out down below the poplar tree, so the rabbits and the squirrels and the chipmunks and the, and the deer, the deer love it. They've got a whole buffet down there right next to the creek so they can drink. But on the negative side, there's a raccoon update. As you will recall, my neighbor, the head of Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, stunning Steve Bradshaw, has caught and relocated two of the three raccoons that he had caught on the night vision camera tearing up my sod back there. He took them out to the park, and I mentioned this, and we have an email. From an email, an email from Jeremy in Dayton, Ohio. <laughs> Hello, Mr. Cornett. I'm currently listening to the experience and heard you mention your neighbor relocating raccoons to a local park. Just a word of advice from experience raccoons have a higher than average rate of rabies infection, and as a result, many municipalities have ordinances against relocating them. We have had issues with raccoons getting into our attic. And about three or four years ago, I, too, trapped and relocated a few to a park a few miles away. On one trip, I was stopped by a police officer who saw me entering the park after dusk. He probably thought, oh, that's Jeremy cruising again. But <laughs> the nice officer notified me that I would need to take the animal back to where I caught it and promptly handed me a ticket to appear in court where I received a $350 fine plus court costs. Should have brought the animal. And that would have made a stir. So, Steve, if you heard this, stay away from the cops when you're relocating the raccoons and don't let one of them bite you. But do you know then, Brian, immediately after I not only made these wildlife observations, but also I got this email, Guess what I looked out in my front yard yesterday morning and saw right over by the big old majestic maple tree? Was the sod ripped up? No, the sod's in the back. This is in my front yard right at the other end of the house. This is barely 20 feet from the front door. There was three of these big, fat, giant, mutant raccoons. Three of them. We thought we started with three. There's at yeah. least three left, and they're lined up in formation. One right beside the other, like they were planning something. Yeah, that's the search party. They're, pl <laughs> they're planning to find their friend that you guys kidnapped, or two friends that you guys kidnapped. Now they're hanging out of your property, plotting. How long would it take a <laughs> raccoon that's about th two or three feet long to walk five miles to the park? I don't know. They don't know which way to go, I guess. Well, they should, they should smell him. They should smell their 
cohorts and compadres. So where are they all coming from? Now you have, I'm going to assume these are different raccoons that the other two haven't returned for revenge. So now you've had altogether five raccoons in the last few weeks. Where are they all coming from? I don't know. It could be the fellow over past the woman that lives next to me because he hadn't mowed his back two and a half acres since the early 1970s. So that's where a lot of the deer hang out because it's almost impassable. Uh, they may be holing up out there, or they may be across the road in the strip of trees we saved from the development, which actually goes down and connects with other residences and goes to the dairy farm down to the other end of the road. So did you they do got anything? a lot of room around here. Did you do anything when you saw them? Yeah, I went back to the house. The fuck? I had my flip-flops on. I wasn't dressed for, <laughs> wasn't dressed for coon battle. You've never, ever admitted to wearing flip-flops before in your life. <laughs> well, I just, I don't wear shoes in the house. You can't live like a savage and just walk around with your shoes on in the house. I agree. And so when I walk out the door, if I'm not going too far, just out in the driveway, I'll slip on a pair of the flipperty floppers. When you got back in the house, did you kick them off like Riddle? Did and raccoons the, fly out of I your was ass? About to say, the funny thing is that <laughs> raccoons then flew completely out of my ass. And those things have sharp claws on the it's worse on the way out than it is on the way in. I'll have you know. You know what you do is you get you get one of those paper towel rolls, the cardboard roll in the middle, and that way it's a, like a conduit where it can go right in without without hanging on the door. Anyway. What? So there's a, <laughs> you have, that's part of the, part of the gerbil, that's part of the, part of the gerbil lore, part of the gerbil, uh, can lore, of, the gerbil of information, lore. gerbil lore. That's the way that they get them again, because they don't want to go in. They don't want to follow the Hershey Highway through the. The behind the green sphincter. Can they I don't want to do that. Uh, so me, you got to give them a conduit. Let me get you away from wherever you are uh -huh. at the bottom of the toilet here. Yeah. At what point does it become reasonable to just slaughter the raccoons? Well, how are you going to do that? With a weapon? With a well, bat? With a knife? Okay, now look. What are you, a machete? A knife there on you? A machete? No, look. First of all, I'm not going to be... Yeah, this is, is is more residential, this area around here, than it used to be before. People went out and target practiced in their backyard firing weapons because they were acres and acres and, and or miles away from people. Now there's housing developments and neighborhoods and children. You hear their, they're screaming all the time, these kids around here, the screams of joy and, and excitement. Oh, my God. Can't stand it. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you can't fire a weapon. I'm not going to try to... Have you ever tried to catch a raccoon that doesn't want to be caught? No, I usually don't it's have a, issues with, with a bat. If you're going to run it down with a fucking bat, Listen. no, that's not... A knife. What am I going to, like, Tarzan fighting the, <laughs> the alligator with the knife to its throat? I'm going to be rolling around in the backyard with this fucking raccoon? I want to tell you this. If I could somehow get you in that backyard or in that front yard, with a baseball bat and a knife. I don't care if it's a butter knife. To just run after raccoons and have someone film it. I'm talking 30 million views. <laughs> I'm talking the biggest video of all time. If you catch one, then we make it on TV. <laughs> but at least chase them.
Uh, I'll see what I can do. I might get Hotchkiss over here with the camera. But anyway, that's the the wildlife. I have another update. I've been teasing this for a few weeks. We finally got our shit mostly together around here. And I've overcome and caught up to uh, some of the other things I needed to, to do. So now it's official. We are doing a Crusade for Children fundraiser this month. It probably ain't going to last long. So I'm going to tell you about it now and give you ample time to prepare. And first, to do this, I must tell a Bobby Heenan story. Because I was in New Jersey with Bobby. It was like 2004 or five. one of the Ring of Honor shows that where we first got to work with each other. And this is after Bobby had been sick originally, but still he was up and about and, and was, you know, could go do these shows and have fun and talk and everything. So we're sitting there. I think it was after the show. And Brian, you remember this. This was back when cell phones, the the flip phone of that era was like the state of the art cell phone. That was the new. Remember when the flip flown flip flown flip flown. <laughs> 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 Hold on. Well, let that's me what flip. you had on your feet, isn't it? Your flip flop. Oh flown. golly, the flip flop phone. That was a. It was, it was the big deal, right? Yes. And so Bobby's got the flip phone and he shows it to me. He says, now I'm supposed to be the brain, right? He said, I'll tell you how smart I am. Remember on those flip phones, flip phone, it was like, see, that's that loose front tooth. It was like the Star Trek communicator. You flipped it open and there on the screen, you saw the number that was calling. But also when you opened the phone, it answered. Remember, you didn't have to press a button. You just opened it and answered. Of course. Yeah. So Bobby, Cindy, his wife, got him this phone. And it rings one day. And he, he doesn't know who it is because you got to open the thing to see the number on the screen, right? And he, and he didn't want to answer it before he knew it was. So he was trying to pry the thing open just ever so slightly just so he could glance in to look at the number without answering it. And of course that didn't work because if you open it far enough to, for the number to pop up, you've answered it. So he said, and they call me the brain. So where I was going with that. Yeah. Was, it was funny when he said it, but that's, where that's I, why they call him the brain. Yeah. That's why they called him the brain. He was the greatest, but I too did a stupid thing here over the last few years. When we started selling the original Jim Cornette action figure, right? The red and yellow one, it was the very first one that came out. We sold a number of those for quite some time. But every once in a while, from the time that I started, you know, getting these from the folks that find folks at Figures Toy Company, you'd find one where the blister pack and shipping had been crushed or cracked or damaged in some kind of way. And I would set it to the side. And the next time we got a shipment, there'd be another five or six, and I'd set them to the side. I'd put it back in a box, and i put it in the garage closet. And then finally, by last year, when Hotchkiss started building the new site for me, and we got the other variants of, of the figures in, and we were doing all that, I said, let me try. I need some space. So I got back in the closet in the garage, and I counted up... <laughs> And by putting five or six of those back at the same time, whenever I found a broken blister pack, I had 80-something of them. 
And I called Figures Toy Company. I said, I've got a big problem. I said, I've got 80-something of these figures left over from since we started selling them, and they're damaged. They're, the blister pack is broke. They're crumpled, whatever. I said, what can we do? Can we call China? And they said, no, we'll just send you some new blister packs. I said, you can do that? Yeah. I thought we had to go all the way to China for these fucking things. So it took me three years to realize that we could just get new blister packs and put the perfectly mint condition figure in a new blister pack instead of just setting the whole thing in the garage. Don't make fun of me, Brian. So what we're going to do as a result of this is I'm going to let somebody profit off of my ignorance. And we have 80-something of the original Jim Cornette action figures left to sell. And 100% of the proceeds is going to the WHAS Crusade for Children at whascrusade.org. They will go on sale Saturday, July 16th at noon Eastern time. Because see, now the, the greatest thing is we got the inventory feature on this badass new website that Hotchkiss built. And he's monitoring all this stuff so we won't have a panic, we won't oversell, we won't blow up. And all the proceeds and 80-something figures, 50 bucks piece, do the math, that's going to be 4,000-something dollars to the Crusade for Children. And hopefully, and those will go quickly, so this is not going to be an ongoing thing because we only got 80-something. Uh, but Saturday, July 16th, noon Eastern, and all the proceeds, and I get some room in my garage for new stuff coming in and all the proceeds goes to the crusade for children on those. And while I'm on the subject, Australia and New Zealand first class mail is flowing again from the United States. We've unblocked you from the website because you couldn't order. If you were in Australia, and New Zealand for, cause remember we talked about, we had some of those orders from last October until this fucking April. And finally, I just sent some of them priority just to get the people their merchandise. But now first class mail is opened up. And if you were afraid you were going to be missing out on the commentator play sets, there are still some available. You can go right now to jimcornette.com if you are down under and order those with impunity. And also on Saturday, July 16th, I said we were going to do this. We saved a couple of boxes of the bloody variants for folks in Australia and New Zealand when that mail got opened back up. So on Saturday, July 16th, at a time that will be announced next week, because I got Hotchkiss Featherbottom, figuring out what time it is when it's, when it's noon in Australia and New Zealand, what time is it here? And we're going to try to put those figures up for the folks in Australia and New Zealand at noon their time, and you're not going to be able to buy a bloody variant unless you live in Australia and New Zealand. We're blocking all the other countries because there's only going to be like 20-something of these things. And I want the people who got screwed the last time to get it. And finally, on July 16th, the A Corny in the UK documentary DVD and the Jim Cornette Live in London DVD, the complete unexpurgated video of my live event at uh, in London back in 2014 
uh, is going to be back on sale. Those two DVDs, only 10 bucks a piece. Because where do you get a better deal than jimcornet.com? And those have not been on sale in quite some time. I can't remember how long. So there you go, jimcornet.com. We're moving forward for the summer, folks. Brian, where, where's your next charitable fundraiser? At jimcornet.com. How much are you selling these figures for? I'll take them all. What? And then I'll put them on eBay the next day. Hey, no, you, you greedy avaricious. I'll sign them with Jim Cornette's name. You, so that way you got a Jim Cornette autograph. It's just not for yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah, guaranteed signed by a WWE superstar, just not the one in the picture. That's right. I'll hire Tito Santana to come over. I I don't think he would go along with that. He's a fine, upstanding man of morals and ethics, or ethicals and morals. Arriba. Arriba. All right, we got the plug out of the way. A quick email here from Miguel. We read his email, I think it was just last week on the program, but uh, his... His dog, Maxwell, his rescue dog, had been diagnosed with cancer and didn't have uh, a great prognosis, and unfortunately, he didn't make it as long as that. Miguel wrote back, and to you and me both, Brian, uh, Jim and Brian, I wanted to thank you for what you did on the last Jim Cornette experience, but unfortunately, that was the last podcast that Maxwell listened to. Um, on June 26th, he had to be put to sleep, but... Miguel says, when we listened to the podcast and he heard his name said by your voice, Jim, he nipped up for a second. Thank you again. I'll never forget what you did for him on his last day. So we've our condolences, Miguel, but we want to remember Maxwell, the puppy. And we've got a, a, a cheerier but not much email from Jacked Up Jeremy Bagley, who, as we've mentioned, raises ridiculous amounts of money for charity and also as a friend to furry woodland creatures and supports all the good causes in the in the world today that's right he's going in with me on these figures he's my partner yeah well except for that he'll try to rip me off every every chance he gets uh but jeremy writes hello jim brian and fellow cult of cornet members having a chance to process the events of last week the continued revelations of the january 6th committee hearings the supreme court rulings I wanted to just send a letter of thanks and gratitude to all of you for being voices for sensibility and progress. Thank you for making me laugh in times that are often confusing, mean, and un unnecessarily difficult. As a member of the LGBTQ community, I can't help but feel like everything I've done in my life could all be taken away because someone appointed by a verified con artist could take away my rights. George Carlin would accurately describe them as privileges since they're now seemingly revocable. I thought by doing the right thing most of the time, serving my country during times of war, paying my taxes, being charitable, and otherwise not fucking with other people, that at the very least I could marry, leave my inheritance to, and visit in the hospital someone that I love and care about more than anything on earth. It seems that soon that could all be taken away from millions of us, like the right of choice has been stolen now from the bodies of millions of women in our country. But I haven't given up yet because your program and the millions of people who listen to it, the hundreds of thousands of people who interact with it on social media, and the two of you give me hope that with common sense, a sense of humor, and the unwillingness to stay quiet about the bullshit we see in the world, we could still have better days ahead. A 60% majority in Congress would be nice too. 
Jacked up Jeremy Bagley. I couldn't have said it better myself, so I just read you saying it. And remember to send me the PayPal right away, and I'll take care of the figures, Jeremy. A lot of them figures are going to be signed, fuck Brian last. I'll sign it whatever you want for an extra (laughs) $500. We have an update. You know, on an ongoing basis, people have been sending in emails recounting their experiences with the apparently the manager of Hulk Hogan's beach shop down there in Floridia, the the fellow named Ron, don't call me Opie Howard. And Ron Howard, the manager, apparently has never met a conspiracy theory that he doesn't like. And he just, he rants at these people. And we even, at, at first, we had people accusing the first guy that wrote in the email and recounted, that can't be true. He made that up. And then person after person kept writing in with their testimonials on what happened with them and their interactions with Ron Howard. And then people started to say, well, go to Facebook. People have been leaving reviews like that for over a year on this guy, right? He's anti-mask. He doesn't believe in COVID. He thinks that Trump is still president and that the, the the government's trying to track us with vaccines and the whole plethora, the whole cornucopia, the whole schmear, as they used to say, of all the craziness in the right wing is encapsulated in Ron Howard here. But now he's taken a further step, Brian. Before he was just castigating people if they wore a mask and tried to adhere to public health guidelines, and he was honestly just trying to to grift a, a good buck out of people, giving, you know, giving him $50 and $100 to hold title belts for pictures. The American way, sure. The American way. But now he's trying to do what those snowflakes do. The cancel culture, Brian, he's canceling people. He's a snowflake. What? What do you mean he is canceling people? people. Well, just listen to this. <laughs> because Tony, I won't give his last name. Ron Howard may be stalking him. But Tony has sent us an email saying, Jim and Brian, you won't believe it, but Ron Howard himself sent me a very interesting notice. I've been banned from Hogan's Beach Shop <laughs> for life. <laughs> Whatever will I do? And Tony continues, you're in for a treat, an email straight from the man himself. Oh, my God. He has forwarded the ban notice. And lastly, he says he mentioned I got my picture with the WCW belt, which is correct. That was my mistake. He did mention what happened to the NWA belt, though. So (laughs) you'll, you'll understand that clarification here in a second when I read Ron Howard's ban notice. But now, anyway, well, now let, me, let me just stop you real quick. I mean, because you have this in front of you. This looks legitimate. This doesn't look like this guy made up an email from Ron Howard or anything. Well, am I allowed to give the the email that's banned? When a guy no, has no. an email with his name at <laughs> no, the name of his don't business dot com. <laughs> well, look, serious inquiries only, but that's not my quest. Forget it. Just do what you're going to do. <laughs> It's. Ju- I'm just telling you that it, he's forwarded me this email from a guy that has an email address of name at business.com. Okay. 
And the subject is Hogan's Beach Shop Lifetime Ban Notice. <laughs> is it in caps? Yes. There's a header. You are hereby banned for life from Hogan's Beach Shop as of the sending of this notice. And then the, the salutation, Tony, it has come to my attention that you have leaked private conversations that occurred in Hogan's Beach Shop back in early February 2022. I distinctly remember most specifically our conversations as we moved around the store. Those conversations were private, protected speech, which you oh violated when you disparaged myself, Hogan's Beach Shop, and Hulk Hogan himself. So did you know when you have a a conversation in a store with a shopkeeper that that is private, protected speech and actionable if you relate that conversation to other people? Were you aware of that, Brian? That's 100% true, except in any court of law ever. Ever. And it, this email continues. It didn't take too long to find your invoice for the $50 picture with the WCW belt. You didn't leave an address, but I have your phone number and email on file. Keep that in mind, exclamation point. Oh my God, that's a threat. Well, either that or a promise. Those conversations were private protected speech, which you violated when you disparaged myself, Hogan's Beat Shop, and Hulk Hogan himself. I think he cut and pasted that one from two paragraphs up. You also released highly sensitive security details, which which compromises our ability to protect the original belts from Vince and other sinister (laughs) agents. That either sounds like a punk rock band or a great fucking tag team and manager, Vince and the Sinister Agents. He continues, it is a serious offense as Hulk's original NWA belt. (laughs) And see, this is the NWA WCW. I'm not sure Ron knows the difference. Original NWA belt was stolen by agents of Vince McMahon. This is a known fact in the industry. (laughs) We're going back to capitals now. Due to your disparaging comments and transgressions, you are hereby banned for life from Hogan's Beach Shop. Oh. Back to lowercase. As with any lifetime ban decision, I spoke with Hulk, and he agrees with the ban 100%. How it must feel to know that your childhood hero thinks that you are nothing more than an untrustworthy sheep. If you reveal any further discussions from that day, you will be forcing us to get out legal team involved. (laughs) Maybe he meant get our legal team involved, but he, that's his legal team. The get out legal team. They will get you out. (laughs) And it's signed sincerely. Ron Howard owner Hogan's beach shop, not manager owner Hogan's beach shop. You know, beyond the craziness, which I'm sure we'll get to in a moment and the complete lack of an understanding of how the legal system works and how laws are applied. (laughs) In terms of the actual lifetime ban, how many people do you think returned to Hogan's Beach Shop without any of these occurrences? How many people go see everything and go, you know, I'm going to come back here tomorrow? What 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 do they call it in the in the legal system when it's the uh, the oh my gosh the recidivism rate when when yeah. former criminals return to their crime. <laughs> I don't know that they got a lot of repeat business that he did have some people, you know, that were so, 
Ron's not a bad guy. I've been friends with him forever. Yeah, he did vote for Donald Trump, and yeah, he is a Republican. Well, then that disqualifies him from being a good guy anyway. But And then they'll kind of admit, well, he does. He is opinionated. And then they'll kind of halfway admit everything that we've all been talking about is true. But he's still a nice guy. That's what some of them say. And the other ones say that they can't get away from him, and he harasses their children when they wear masks in his store in the middle of a pandemic. And this was going back to before vaccinations. I want to believe this so much that he got on the phone and he called Hulk Hogan. And he said, you know, hello, brother, it's me. <laughs> it's Ron. Listen, I got to talk to you about this guy. Who? I, I got to talk to you about Who? this guy. Who are you? He's Ron. let everyone know about the secret information about where the belts are hidden. He did it on a very popular podcast. Vince's secret agents or sinister agents will find out. Hulkster, I have to ban him. Are you okay with that? Yeah, sure, brother. All right. What you got to do, brother? Yeah, I'll talk to you later. <laughs> yeah, because the private protected speech is great. The highly sensitive security details. He's got a beach shop with belts hanging on the wall across the street from the fucking ocean. I don't think it's, it's uh, Fort Knox. I don't know that there's a lot of high tech. What do you think? They got the laser beams where you have to step over them carefully or elsewise if you trip one the ceiling drops on you and uh yeah the the sinister eight you know it's a well-known fact in the industry brian sinister agents of vince mcmahon stole hulk's original belt i want to create a hulk hogan bullshit museum where you take all <laughs> the things he's lied about and you actually make a museum of that but pretend it's all real like uh you know a wax dummy of him with metallica Brother, 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 they got one, brother. You haven't heard about it? It's in Washington. They call it the Smithsonian right now, but they're changing it to the Bole. A calendar that has 400 days on it that he worked every <laughs> single day. The Hulk Hogan Bullshit Museum. What a crazy story here. And uh, he's seeking out people who spoke on this show. He's seeking them out to send them threatening emails. Because no one gives a shit about a lifetime ban from, you know, some quasi-museum in the middle of nowhere. Well, that was very thinly veiled. We, I have your email and your phone number. Keep that in mind. I also am an expert in bird law, so you better watch out. <laughs> no, down there, it's, it's pelicans and seagulls. See? If you're not a if you're not a beach bird, they don't know anything about the bird law down there in Florida. You see what happens when Jimmy Hart's not in charge? Yeah, everything goes to hell without poo poo in charge of things. Jimmy Hart would have that store running like a well oiled machine. Do you think Ron Howard gets along with Brutus Beefcake? I don't know. There was that that problem when when Ron went parasailing that one time. No, I have no idea. I don't know if. Uh, if Ron gets along with any of Hulk's family, Brutus or Nick or who, what's, what's the daughter's name? Oh my God. The daughter's name. Brooke. Uh, Colette. Brooke. Oh, Brooke. Colette. What? I don't know who's who. All right. Hey, uh, real quick before we move past this uh, nutty subject. Yes. You know, the Brutus Beefcake incident was July 4th, 1990. And Adrian Adonis was July 4th, 88. Wow. Joey Morella was July 4th, 94. And, wow. Uh, and Bruno was in the car. And I'm just curious, when it comes to all the July 4th tragedies that happened, and I think there were a few others that I'm not even thinking about right now, was that ever something? Was there ever wrestlers that were spooked to travel on a certain day? 
What actually I wasn't until now because I didn't put all those together until you just strung them along. And it was downtown Bruno, not Bruno San Martino in the car with yeah. Yeah. Joey Morella. Well, just for, for some of the audience, they, they still can't figure out who shit stain is. That's, that's scary. And it was just several incidents right in a row within what a six year period. Um, you know, honestly, the 4th of July in the Tennessee territory, when I was a fan, they didn't do a big show unless it just happened to, you know, I remember one time we had a 4th of July spectacular at, in Louisville because the 4th fell on a Tuesday and they were there anyway. Uh, but there wasn't any real, you know, uh, uh, concerted effort to make big shows or whatever. So we were just making the trips we always made. And I can't remember any in those days, 70s, early 80s, any superstition or anything around the 4th of July. And then the 4th of July got to be a big deal because of the Great American Bashes and Dusty making the, you know, all the summer shows a big thing. But then again, the worst luck I had was I missed the first war games in the Omni in 87 on the 4th of July because I'd blown my fucking other ACL, the left one. I think on June 30th in Philly, kicking Reggie Morton in the fucking head. So the, I had bad luck in that I missed the first 10 days of the 87 bashes. God damn it. But, um, but I don't remember it being a, a jinx or a, anything to cause anybody to pause for the 4th of July itself. But that is spooky that not only Joey Morella and uh, Adrian Adonis, but also... Uh, Oh, goddamn, who else did you Beefcake. just say? Beefcake's Beefcake, parasailing accident. The parasailing thing. Brian Blair showed up with some woman, and I think that's the story, and then her knees hit him in the face, and that yeah, was it. She, the, the, she was parasailing. I know this story because it, you know, obviously it was a big deal. At, it's still a big deal of Beefcake, but it was a big deal at the time. When you, you get on the, the thing and the boat pulls you, you start going so fast that because you've got the sail on, you actually lift up off the water and you're flying and that needs some speed and right as she's leaving the fucking water it, they turned or she went sideways or whatever and he turns around and both her knees bash him in the face at like fucking 60 miles an hour caved his whole goddamn face in i've never understood the attraction of holding on to something flimsy or skimpy and being pulled at a high rate of speed, uh, up above the uh, the ground or the water in the air, being held up by a fucking handkerchief. The whole thing looks dodgy to me. Well, when, that, you, when you put it like that, yeah. Well, would you do that? First of all, let me apologize for the noise. Julio and his friends are right now working on the area behind the wing of the Arcadian Vanguard offices here. But would I parasail? I don't think so. I don't think that's one of the ones I would do. Yeah. Jet ski, I love. That's fun. Would you do well, that? Well, that you've got something. You're riding something. You've got something underneath you that you can control. It's not somebody pulling you. And you, if, what are you supposed to do back there holding on to that thing? You got skis on your fucking feet. You got a goddamn umbrella tied to your back. And the boat's 40 feet in front of you. Slow down. What the fuck? With a pair of the, the jet ski and things like that, you're controlling it. It's a vehicle. You can stop it if you want to. You're not fucking 50 feet in the air. 
There's a little more organized logic to that whole thing. I don't know whether I'd do that either. If you did that, would you wear goggles? Well, look, I don't want to get water in my eyes. We've already been over this. I know, but you have glasses on typically. Would you take the glasses off and put goggles on? That's the question. Do they have prescription goggles? I'm sure they do, but would you have the foresight to get them in advance of this? <laughs> the foresight? I see what you did there. <laughs> I'm not going to goddamn be driving a, 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 a motorcycle, a car, a fucking any kind of boat or jet ski, or anything without my glasses on, because I would then run into fucking something. Would you ski? Are you out of your mind? Again, you're putting, you're basically strapping boards to your feet and holding on to a rope while somebody else decides how fast you're going to go and in which direction. Fuck that. Did you ever have a skateboard? No! That's ridiculous, too. When I was fucking six years old, I could tell that. Well, I, the first time I saw a skateboard, I, I don't even know if I saw one. Did they have them when I was six? They did, but they weren't at the level that they were. Yeah, well, later. roller skates became the same thing. But all the, whenever I first saw one, saw roller skates, and then went through that whole skateboard thing in the 70s where everybody's trying to skateboard, I said, that doesn't make any sense. You're putting wheels on your feet. And you can't stand up on the fucking wheels. And you it, it looks like a good way to break your arm, your leg, your neck, your back, or whatever. And I'll either walk or I will ride something that has a wide base and is unable to be toppled or thrown sideways or pulled over or me go face first over the top of it or whatever. So skateboards... Ice skates, roller skates has always been the stupidest looking thing in the world to me. How the fuck is anybody going to stand up on any of that shit? You've never roller skated? Never. Never? I tried once. I went to a roller skating establishment with an old friend of mine. And I got some skates and I put them on and I tried for about 15 minutes to stand up. And then for about another 10 minutes to take a step, and then I crawled to the concession stand on my hands and knees, sat at a table, got me a hot dog and a drink, <laughs> took those fucking skates off. <clears throat> and the only reason I was there is because he told me it was a great place to find girls. I didn't find any girls. I bruised my fucking knee and had three hot dogs and two Cokes. <laughs> and that'd be the last time that I fucking... Entertain the idea of putting roller skates on my feet. What about a roller coaster, a controlled setting where you're... Fuck you! See? Fuck you! Here's another thing. Fuck you! You know why? Because there's no reason whatsoever to ride a roller coaster. Because you end up at the same place you left, and in the middle, all they do is try to convince you that you're about to fucking die! The thrill. That's why you ride the roller coaster. I like the tilt-a-whirl. The tilt-a-whirl spins around and around and around on the ground. That's enough thrill for me. What about like the pirate ship? You know that one where they go from one side all the way down to the other side, back and forth? I'm not a fan of that either, but it's not as bad as a roller coaster. But no, the roller, you go all the way up and then just drop down. It's almost as stupid as the goddamn deal that you get in where they, they haul you up 100 feet in the air and then it just drops. 
instantly, 100 feet down. How many times have you heard of that going awry? Some kid just died of that in Florida, I think, uh, earlier this year. Exactly. That's why that Six Flags Kentucky Kingdom closed for like five years and opened up here not long ago under new ownership because they cut this poor girl's feet off, both of them. And there was a a big lawsuit. If if Stephen P. New had been retained for that case, he'd own the state of Kentucky right now. We could kick Mitch McConnell out. Uh, but no, that thing, that's a fucking death and disaster waiting to happen. So no, I don't like any of the shit that makes you go way off the ground or upside down. There's no reason for it. It's not fun. It's fun. When, when, when we it did is the, fun. Now, oh, fuck that. <laughs> when we did the Six Flags OVW deal, we, they said, go, oh, go to the park, do anything you want to do. Everything's free. It's all on us. I had some idiot talk me into getting on one of those roller coasters. I was a raw nerve end, tensed up every muscle in my body for four minutes. When I got off of it, I had to walk around for about five minutes and calm down to make sure I didn't grab him around the throat. And I said, let's go. We're never doing that again. That'll be the last time I do that. What about a lazy river? Now that sounds right up my alley. But have you been in one? A lazy river weather. Yes, I like those. You just float. You just float. It's very relaxing and peaceful and calm. And, you know, there's like, when I was a kid, I played the Adventureland game. You know, Disney, they got the, this was my favorite game to play with my mom, Adventureland. And you move your little, your little piece down the river through all the different lands of adventure. And the first one that gets to the end, well, he won the adventure. Adventureland. That, that looked nice. It was nice and slow moving and good scenery and. No chance of getting hurt or killed or having your neck broken or whatever. That's that's recreation. Have you been to Disney World? I have never been to Disney World. I've been to the Universal Studios down there. Uh, I was there quite a number of times because obviously TNA was there. But I, is there any bigger tourist trap? It used to be Stuckies. Stuckies on the side of the interstate. You go in there, it was, it was like a precursor to Cracker Barrel. They will, they will sell you every goddamn cheap 99-cent piece of crap that was ever made in China or Korea or Indonesia or wherever, and they'd give you two fried eggs and one piece of toast back in the day for 99 cents. That's why the guys always stop for breakfast at Stuckey's. But no, no, I don't like none of that stuff. But speaking of Disneyland, <laughs> you double dog dared me to talk. I wasn't even going to mention this because it's just so preposterous. And what can you say to flesh it out otherwise than just laughing? But apparently, Joey Ryan, Dick Boy, the uh, the Dicks, what are the King of Dong style? That's what he was calling himself, right? He was the guy who said, oh, wrestling needs to evolve and adapt. And why are people offended by what I do? Because it's all entertainment. And we're all in this together. And everybody should be allowed to participate and to play and to fulfill their art. And then later on, he, after he was accused of all kinds of shit with all kinds of people from all kinds of people, then he said, oh, golly, I was living like a rock star. 
I was, I've had a, I bought a big mansion out here in California on all this money I was making, throwing people around wrestling rings with my dick. And I was living like a rock star and I was such a celebrity. He was such a celebrity, Brian, the, the demands on him and the, the people coming to genuflect in his general direction and ask for his autograph. And he was just so, such a star, such a celebrity, such an icon in wrestling that it just, it ran away with him mentally. And that's why he misbehaved and did all these things. And he was going to make himself a better person. That's the last we heard of him, right? Well, apparently, all the money that he made being this international celebrity and living like a rock star and people genuflecting in his general direction didn't last but about 18 months. And he may not have been as big a celebrity and a mainstream superstar as he thought he was because he got hired to work on one of the rides at Disneyland because they had no idea who the fuck he was and they passed his back he passed his background check because they background checked him under his real legitimate legal given christian name and not his goofy outlaw mud show wrestling name because he was such a big superstar and internationally known that they had no idea that he'd ever been a public figure before and he was just some schlub that wanted to run the fucking ride and wear the safari hat. And so he worked there for about three weeks until somebody, the one wrestling fan left in probably in Southern California that might recognize him, took a picture of him at the ride and it went viral for everybody laughing at, here's dick boys running the ride at Disneyland, and the Disney people apologized and fired him. Let that be a moral to the story, ladies and gentlemen, when you're an internationally known celebrity and a superstar and you live like a rock star, and living like a rock star means you have to become, as they say across the pond, a sex pest and annoy women and attack women and assault women all while telling people who have been in the wrestling business longer than you've been alive how they need to modify their behavior hey dipshit you ain't tall enough to work on the ride at disneyland either are you <laughs> what do you think his next step is is it going to be skid row is it going to be the boulevard of broken dreams are we going to see a picture of him laying in an alley Broke, busted, and disgusted with a whiskey bottle in his back pocket. All because since when they took away his rock star celebrity and he couldn't work at Disney anymore, he had nothing left. What do you think, Brian? I don't know. And, you know, we didn't talk about this story when it first popped up because the photo emerged. And it was something seeing him with what I'm assuming is a blonde wig and his beard was dyed blonde and he's wearing his crocodile hunter outfit <laughs> and you know some fan saw him took a picture online and it immediately went viral and i do have a question that comes out of this and it's a weird one because i certainly am no fan of joey ryan and what he was accused of was rape so if that's the case fuck that guy but in general when these people are ostracized from wrestling or whatever it may be is the expectation that they never work again? 
You know, maybe it's not idea, a good idea if you're someone who is accused of what he did and was so public. Probably not a good idea being out there in the public in front of people like that. But that's kind of the question. What kind of future? And it's not just Joey Ryan. There were other guys that were that are now cast-offs of the wrestling business, but they had fans. And it may be a few thousand. It may be more than that in some cases. They had fans. They had YouTube videos that did great numbers. People have seen them. They're going to be seen again. Beyond wrestling, what kind of comeback for life is there from all this? Well, well, tell And again, not taking any of their sides because that heinous shit needs to go and the people who did that in my eyes need to go, but where do they go? Well, they probably shouldn't go to a children's amusement park after they've been accused of sexual crimes. I think that was what the, the ridiculousness and the preposterosity of the thing is probably if you there's Joey Ryan looking or working as a used car salesman that probably you know nobody would have oh yeah there he is yeah he still looks the same still looks like a fucking half-baked brown and serve roll covered in pubic hair but to be at Disneyland the happiest place in the world the children's place and also does this man have no other skill whatsoever he can't be a real estate agent. He can't sell used cars or even new cars. He can't get a job in an office somewhere that um, that does background checks. But again, you'd, if you don't have to deal with the public, he's not been convicted of a crime. So I think it was the fact that, if, you know, if if this was an insurance agency and he was some guy in a cubicle somewhere i don't know that he would flunk a background check because he may, well, he may have been accused of a crime but he was not charged with a crime he's not been convicted of a crime that we're aware of i didn't run his rap sheet but in this instance i mean but when you an amusement park where here's all the children and here's this guy who used to fucking wear speedos and make people grab his dick and throw them around by it that should have been a red flag that probably, to him, maybe I shouldn't apply for this particular job. And isn't that mostly the domain of, of high school and college kids who are still trying to figure out what they want to do with their life and career instead of a fucking 40-something-year-old man? Is that what you that is? For, I'll get a job over at Disney running a ride. That is balls. I mean, it, again, he had YouTube videos that because of the ridiculousness of it, got a lot of views. And that was one of the things that was so embarrassing about him doing this was that people were seeing it. People saw him. People know who he is. The idea that he got a job in the public, like you said, a kid's amusement park. Remember, there was that tweet of him with the basket around his crotch? Yes. And he said, I have Easter eggs for all the kids? Same yeah, guy. reach right in. Yeah. But see, that's the thing. They think, and that's the problem with the whole, the AEW bubble now and before it was an indie wrestling bubble. Because they get such strong, positive feedback from the, the indie wrestling fans that everybody involved thinks suddenly they're bigger than they are. Oh, the Young Bucks were so huge, and this guy's so huge, and Pockets is so huge. The average person 
has no idea these people exist or anything about their backstories or lives. If you'd have said to Disney, yeah, that guy right there used to be the wrestler, Joey Ryan. They'd have gone, who? It's not like it used to be. It's not like everybody knows Steve Austin, The Rock, The Undertaker, or in the territory days, depending on what, you know, part of the country you were in, Bruno or Dusty or Von Erich, whatever the case. These guys literally, and girls in this indie wrestling bubble over the last 10 years, because they get the constant feedback from the constant crowd that supports that constant tomfoolery, they think they're over. And then Tony Khan comes along and says, okay, these fucking yahoos, the Hardly Boys and Twinkle Toes, they have a built-in audience that will live and die with them and travel forever, to, wherever to see them. So I'll start a promotion around them. But then you find out it's the same people <laughs> that's going everywhere. It's not like there's a bunch of them in New York, a bunch of them in Chicago, a bunch of them in every town. It's the same fucking people going everywhere. But the, that's the point, is they have convinced themselves. Jimmy Havoc, remember him? He went from king of the death matches to selling, de delivering pizza. Not even selling it, just delivering it. He had looked like a goddamn softball with all the fucking stitches on his head. Weird, freaky-looking, fucking half-head-shaved, pale, fishy-white goof. But they are, whether it's him, whether it's this guy, whether it's Pockets, whether it was the Hardly Boys, whether it's Danhausen now, whether it's any one of these gimmicks, they are allowed to do something that makes no sense, that pisses all over the wrestling business, and honestly, logically runs off your mainstream viewing audience. But because a tiny handful of people find it so preposterously funny or entertaining or they like to laugh at the business or whatever, they're the ones over there screaming, oh, we want more of this, want more of this. So each one of these guys gets their moment in the sun, the new hot indie darling, whether it's the hot indie gimmick or the hot indie spot doer or the hot indie flyer or the hot indie brawler. And it lasts six months to a year to 18 months. Got to give it to Pockets. National TV has stretched his one note out for about three years. But it's just goofiness. And these people, they end up thinking that they are rock stars, like Joey Ryan said, and they act like it. And then three years later, it's, you know, where are they now? Nobody knows because nobody gives a shit. Joke's over. Yeah, you know, it's funny, too, because everyone likes to pretend like the wrestling business is such a different animal today than it ever was before. They don't have the kind of dirt bags in it today that were there before. And you see, it's the same thing. In terms of the worst people, they're people that can only survive in the wrestling business and can't survive in any other industry or any other line of work. This is it. And there are still guys like that. And you mentioned two of them with Joey Ryan and Jimmy Havoc. Well, we're, we're going to talk about later on with uh, Greg Oliver, who, sh who we should plug, is going to be on to talk about his blockbuster article on SportsIllustrated.com just this week about Rocky Johnson. But, you know, it, it, nothing changes because people people's basic human nature doesn't change. And there's always going to be people that are going to do stupid shit, and there's always going to be people that are going to do smart shit. 
because there's always going to be stupid and smart people, generally more of the first than the second. And so just because there were more professional wrestlers in the territory days and in the old days than there are now, uh, everybody think, oh, it used to be such a horrible business, but like you said, now we've cleaned it up. No. It's just different kinds of dirt bags and probably fewer of them because there's fewer wrestlers overall by a large margin. But people don't change. You're always going to find brand new assholes. They just may not find jobs. They just may not find jobs. And golly gee, you know, if, if Joey Ryan had had any talent for the wrestling business and tried to, well, I guess he did try to get over the right way. And he didn't, because he didn't have any talent. And then that's when he decided to throw people around with his dick. And then he gets over for two years, and then everybody finds out he's an asshole. And now he's fired from Disneyland. Eh. But he wanted me to modify my behavior. You know what, Brian? I'm telling you right now. I think that I just had a good idea. What about if Joey Ryan was a used car salesman? But here's the problem. Would you believe Joey Ryan if he told you something? Because he's a noted liar and prevaricator. And you got to be able to believe the salesman. So maybe, maybe Joey Ryan should be an auto mechanic. What do you think? That way. Well, if you're under the car, no one sees you. Yeah, exactly. You're covered in the oil and the grease. You're under the car. They only see your feet. But you know what? Those auto mechanics. They're shady, too, because they'll overcharge you. You've heard this a million times. Auto mechanics, people with the auto parts stores, they want to overcharge. They want to jack the prices up. They want to soak you and bilk you. That's why it's always best, folks, if your car is broken down, if something is not working on your motorcycle or your boat or your unicycle or your helicopter or even the, the Brian copter that you keep out back of last manor, if something's the matter, don't take it to a crooked repairman. Don't go to a crooked brick-and-mortar parts store. you got to do the work yourself, and it's so easy when you get all the parts from our friends at rockauto.com. You do not have to look at Joey Ryan laying prostate on the floor in front of you, face up underneath your 69 Chevy. No, you don't. Because now you can be under that 69 Chevy. You can be face up, face down. You can take any fucking position you want to take with that 69 Chevy, but you're going to save money because you're doing the work yourself with the parts you got from rockauto.com. You, If you repair and maintain your cars, you save money for important things like mortgage and food and tickets to Disneyland. Why in the world would you want to spend 30%, 50%, 100% more for the exact same auto part at a chain store or a new car dealership. Those new car dealerships, they are noted for jacking the prices up. You try to get a whammy bar on a Framistat, see how much it's going to cost you. But at rockauto.com, it's a family business. They've been serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Brian, has there been an online for 20 years now? Oh, at least, yes, maybe 35 years or so. Well, then they got started late, didn't they? They only started 20 years ago because that's why they were trying to do it right. They took their time and they got their plans together. 
And we mentioned that rockauto.com is not a brick-and-mortar store. No, instead, it's a magical place on a South Sea island made all of glass and plastic. And they've got all the parts lined up there. And whether it's for your classic car or your daily driver, a few easy clicks will get everything you need and delivered directly to your door. And then once the mailman shows up with it, kick him in the nuts, take the package, slam the door in his face, and get to work. And put this part on your car or truck, and then drive out in the front yard and run that mailman over as he's getting up off the sidewalk. Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck and write JCE in their How Did You Hear About Us box so they know we sent you because rockauto.com is just like Hulk Hogan's Beat Shop and Ron Howard. They want to know who's sending people to their door. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your vehicle will ever need. RockAuto.com. All right, Brian, explain to me this latest development in the WWE because I saw online there was an article Logan Paul signs with the WWE. So I want to know more information. So I click on this and it says Logan Paul announced on Twitter. He is signed with the WWE and it has the link to the Twitter. So I, okay, I'll find out more. So I click on the Twitter and it's Logan Paul on Twitter saying, Hey, I've signed with the WWE. So we got all the details now of obviously Logan Paul is one of the, the Paul brother. Who's his brother? Billy Paul. Mr. Mr. McMahon, Mr. It's McMahon, Mr. Jake McMahon, Paul Mr. McMahon. Brother. Not Billy Paul, but Jake Paul. We got a thing. I'm sorry, Rocky. You did it better. Anyway, so. Did he? Well, he kind of did. He did it better than I did just now. He didn't do it better than Billy Paul did, but Billy Paul didn't do wrestling parody songs. So. No, Billy Paul did Miss Jones. <laughs> he did Mrs. Jones. Because <laughs> they got a thing going on. Every day at the same cafe, 4.30. Anyway, so the Paul, the, the Paul fellow, one of the Pauls, Logan Paul, has signed with the WWE. The last time we saw him, he was in a tag match with Miz, and then Miz turned on him for whatever reason, and just, as I recall, we said, what the fuck was that all about? Because didn't he just drop him on his head and then just walk off, or... He walked off on Logan Paul. Logan Paul walked off on him. Whatever. No, he walked off on he. They won the match, and they then won he, the match while they raised each other's hands. He turned on Logan Paul and left. And Logan Paul, reasonably so, looked kind of confused in the ring as to why this had happened. The same way yeah. we at home wondered yeah. why the hell did this happen, and then we never found out why it happened. Well, now the story apparently came out later on that Logan Paul he wanted to leave as a babyface. So, so apparently, are you serious? That's what I read on the internet. Now, for whatever any of this is worth, Logan Paul, I read after that match had taken place, that story came out that he thought that he should leave as a babyface or be a, come out of it as a babyface. So apparently, since he's a celebrity that was doing a celebrity match, and that's the spot they had for him, and he's, now this dipshit wants to be a babyface, so apparently they had Miz drop him on his head and walk off from him, and that... They told him that turned him babyface. 
Apparently he was happy with that. I don't fucking know. Well, we were impressed with him. We were really impressed with him from every time we've seen him on TV. He carried himself well. He was not in any way embarrassing to the business in the ring. We said they should sign this guy. Yeah, well, now they've signed him. Now the question is, is he going to come? Because I saw that that now somewhere or another, Miz was at least speaking about him like they hadn't broken up or something. So I don't know whether he's going to be a heel with Miz and Miseries or whether he's going to be a baby face or what. But I mean, it, maybe they play it like that. Miz didn't think he was going to come back. And now that he's coming back, Miz wants to be his friend. And then if he wanted to leave as a baby face, maybe he wants to come in as a baby face, too. And he goes right out with Miz. There's a natural story there. Well, but here's the problem. This guy's a natural heel. He he can, if you don't have any experience in wrestling, but you're a great athlete like he apparently is, and you can be taught some moves, it's easier to be a heel than a babyface because it's easier to be a prick and make people dislike you than it is to really make people like you. That's in wrestling or any any genre of, of life. It's easier to make people dislike you than to make people like you. If he's going to be a babyface, he's going to be a green babyface with an outsider's view of wrestling and no idea of how to connect with people. But if he's going to be true to himself, he's a heat-getting, fucking self-promoting, cocky, arrogant and or obnoxious fucking guy that can probably, you know, tickle the taints of the wrestling fans in a, in a negative fashion and get some heat. So I would hope to fuck that he'd be a heel because elsewise they've, they may have spent some more money that they ain't going to get a return on. I mean, you, you, can you see this guy being a fucking Ricky Morton baby face? I could see him getting over like that, but I think it's better to get him over as a heel first because I think even in that match, fans were kind of predisposed to boo him. He's with the Miz. He's a social media star. Quite frankly, a lot of his content is probably geared towards a different demographic than the WWE male older audience. That is the biggest audience that they have. What is his target audience, old Logan Paul? I would think it would probably be girls between teenage years into their 20s, maybe some young kids. Well, not young kids, but teenagers. It's not really a older audience for Logan teenagers Paul Teenagers like boxers these days. They like fighters. They like... Well, they like, we know they like well, social media sensations. And him and his brother have been doing it for a while, so a lot of their audience has grown with them. But what I was going to say is, so they bring him in. He's got a lot of talent. What they announced is he has signed a multi-event deal. So that's interesting phrasing there. What do you think of that? Multi-event, did not multi-year, but multi-event. Right. That tells us we're going to see him more than once. But it doesn't tell us anything else. <laughs> And at that point, why would you why would you phrase that instead of instead of just leaving it open? Because if you say, well, he's been signed to more than one event, then the first time we see him, we know, well, it's this is not the only chance we're gonna have. Maybe we can skip this one and catch the next one. I can understand him not wanting to say we've signed him for five years, you're gonna see him for the next five years every fucking week. But I uh, multi-event. Well, here's uh, the other thing to think about in terms of how they use him and how they bring him in. And again, the way they left things off, you would think there's a natural thing there with him and The Miz. And more than likely, he's worked with The Miz uh, before his match, so they have a good relationship. 
But in terms of heel or babyface, I agree with you. He's a natural heel. Bring him in as a heel would be a great move. But the problem is, look at the roster right now. Are there enough babyfaces to justify another <laughs> heel? Well, now there you've got a point there. And again, it's it, we we went through their roster. They had before all the massive cuts of the last year, they had 200 and something people on contract on Raw, SmackDown, NXT, Unseen Developmental. You know, people that Howie the Mailroom guy locked in a closet at Titan Tower, they just found them. They had 200-something people. They fired 60 or 70 or maybe 80 of them. That means they got 120, 130-something left. And we're sitting there going, well, they might have to make this heinous asshole a babyface because they've just got no other babyfaces. How how can they let themselves get in this position? And again, you called it a couple of weeks ago or a few weeks ago. They had the perfect time and they had the perfect thing until they changed it with Seth Rollins to make him babyface. Yeah. And then they had him go out there and stay heel. And now we have a lot of heels. <laughs> and uh, and take a sledgehammer to somebody. instead. I, I respect you. And now I'll hit you with a sledgehammer. They would have bought Seth in a top babyface position and it would have got him by the next six months at least. But but now I don't know. So welcome Logan Paul to the WWE for at least two matches. At least two. And, you know... It, it, <sighs> you know, for people who work behind the scenes in wrestling right now, these guys, the Bad Bunnies, the Logan Pauls, this is as close as it gets to booking the NWA champion into your territory. <laughs> you know you're going to get him once or twice a year, and you got him for TV a few times to do some promos or an angle or two, and then they'll be gone. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and, and now, so now let's think, who are the big draws, ticket sellers, ratings movers, pay-per-view attractions, and how many of them actually come to work every day? How many of them are Brock Lesnar? How many of them are Ronda Rousey? How many of them are Roman Reigns Logan now. Paul? How many of them are Roman Reigns? How many of them are John Cena is going to bop back in every so often? All the guys and girls that practically that draw the money and or are featured as something special and or are outside celebrities only work two or three times a year, show up at WrestleMania or make the big pay-per-view or whatever. So no wonder they look like bigger stars than the guys you see every goddamn Monday or Tuesday or Friday. And how do you get out of that? <laughs> do you, you know, you can't, you can't take the guys that they're seeing every week on TV because there's so few of them and drop any of them out. I would suggest putting more people in the mix. At least there'd be some variety, but it seems that, their writing staff is bigger than the roster of active talent that they use on either one of the programs. So again, in, in AEW, we've got, we see a guy we like, we know we're probably never going to see him again for six months. And in the WWE, we see a guy on TV one week. We know he'll be 30 minutes of every week's show for the next two months. It's, there's no, there's no middle ground. But Logan Paul, he's a celebrity by Cracky, and that's what you need. You need more celebrities. More celebrities with size who seem to get it. Yes. 
Hey, but it, now the question is, is he, how old is Logan Paul? Let me look that up. Because if he wants to do this for a, a career, is he old enough to, to actually get good at it? Do, I mean, I guess 27 uh, years old. Okay. But now he's made a lot of money in all these other ventures. So does he want to be even in a position right now, like a, a Roman Reigns or a top guy that's making seven figures for a contract, but having to apply himself to do that regularly for a few years. I wonder is, is that is the need for money, even millions of dollars pressing with him. He's young enough and he's athletic enough. If he's coachable and doesn't have attitude problems, he could be a big money drawing heel, but does he just want to dabble or does he want to actually do this? And the other thing to remember is bringing him in. He's one of these guys that's not going to have the third party issues. I guarantee he's not giving up any of his third party stuff to <laughs> WWE. So that's a lot of income right there. He's making on top of whatever he does, probably for fun in a lot of cases with WWE. So who knows? But, you know, that's the thing. A lot of these people, they can't do third party deals. He's coming in there. He's got the best third party deals of any wrestler on the roster. And it's not like it used to be with outside athletes from other sports, because in the days of, who was it showed Wahoo his wrestling check? I'm trying to think now. I'm just, I'm just in the middle of trying to read the book on Wahoo by Karen McDaniel, his widow, and John Cosper, but Wahoo played pro football. And one of the wrestlers showed him his check for wrestling. He said, was that for one week? He said, that was for one match. What the fuck? Same thing with Ernie Ladd. Ernie Ladd started dabbling in wrestling in the, what was it, 63. But he was still playing football for a few years, but that was in the days when the pro football players weren't making the multi-millions they make now. And he realized, Jesus Christ, I'm making more money on my off-season wrestling than I am on the whole season playing football. And he switched. But that's not the case anymore with the, you know, ridiculous salaries that all the professional athletes get. So you have to, you have to deal with dabblers, a, a, a guy, any kind of a. He can get away with, but the other thing is a football player, an athlete, even an actor right now, like The Rock or John Cena, they probably have something in their active contract that says you can't do wrestling. You can't yeah. do something like this that's either going to hurt you before a season or mess up the way you look potentially before a shoot. He doesn't have these issues. Yeah, but but also, like I was saying, is you're never going to have a situation where a really noted professional athlete is going to switch careers and start from scratch in wrestling and learn and get better and mature and make that a second career You're because they've already got the money from their previous sports, so you're going to get dabblers. You ain't going to have the Wahoo McDaniels and the Ernie Lads and the all the former great football players that you would that you had at one time that uh because it's not necessary anymore. They've already got their money. Now they're just gonna dabble. So they might be an attraction, but they're never gonna start in and do this full and have a second full career. Things have changed. None of these guys become wrestlers because they're trying to replace the income they would get from being a major league athlete for one of the sports in America. But, you know, you don't really get those athletes at all. The ones you get, I mean, LT was desperate for cash. That's the only reason you got a superstar like yeah. that. But no, I mean, you don't get those guys at all anymore. 
You know, it's sad. It's sad. You know, you used to be able to to find professional athletes that wanted to change careers no more. You used to be able to to get a good night's sleep no more. With all the things going on in the world today, Brian, I don't know how anybody can sleep. You got you to be staying up late at night, staring at the ceiling, worrying about the way that things might have been. But now, now, Brian, I've discovered the way that everybody, professional athletes, drunken bums on the sidewalk, everybody, they can all meet in the middle and agree on one thing. They get the best night's sleep they've ever had on a Helix sleep mattress. That's right. I actually just bought another one for the family here. How many mattresses can you sleep on at one time? I'm not sleeping on all of them. We have a lot of people here. You got a lot of people. Well, what are you doing? Renting rooms again? No. Well, having, folks, if you're running kids. a boarding house, and that's an, <laughs> I, now that you've mentioned it, if you're running a boarding house, ladies and gentlemen, if you're running Mrs. Mendelbright's boarding house, and you've got a bunch of people coming in and out just sleeping on things, couches, easy chairs, overstuffed ottomans, whatever, get a bunch of Helix Sleep mattresses. If you go to helixsleep.com right now, that's H-E-L-I-X sleep.com slash J-C-E, you can take the two-minute sleep quiz, and they will not only match you to a customized mattress that'll give you the best sleep of your life, but if you tell them, hey, I'm running a flop house, I need about 10 or 12 of these things, maybe they could work something out. You never know. And then that way you could outfit every room in your house with a Helix mattress. As people are walking down the street, hey, you need a good night's sleep? Give me 10 bucks. Come on. Let them take a nap. And then you'll see what happens. You'll never be able to get rid of these people. They'll move right in your house. They won't leave because they will not want to be far away from their luxurious, comfortable Helix sleep mattress. They've got different models to choose from soft, medium, firm cool-down mattresses, spinal alignment mattresses. You know, it's amazing. You lay down on this mattress, both sides fold in on top of you. It gives you a big bear hug, and it cracks your spine. Then it flops back down, and then as long as you keep an eye on it, just to make sure it doesn't get jumpy, you can go to sleep on it from there. They've got all kinds of mattresses. They got mattresses, like typical mattresses you could sleep on without worrying about any sort of anything you could sleep on it like a regular mattress no there's nothing typical about these mattresses they're extraordinary they're guinness book of world records mattresses do you know they were voted the number one best overall mattress of 2020 by wired magazine and as we mentioned before if if a magazine devoted to cocaine fiends and meth addicts that's not what wired magazine is no it's not oh you told me that you know you're probably getting that confused with the book wired that woodward wrote about john belushi That's what it was. Well, John Belushi never slept on a Helix sleep mattress or he wouldn't have needed the cocaine, folks. He was driven to drugs because he didn't get a good (laughs) night's sleep. That's not what I'm saying either. I thought that's what you said. And, you know, it was all I'm saying is if you sleep good, then you don't misbehave and you don't make bad decisions in life. You wake up feeling rested and refreshed. You don't get on the drugs. You don't you don't do things like that when you sleep on a Helix sleep mattress. And they, like I said, they match your body type and get you the perfect mattress. Why would you buy a mattress made for somebody else? You don't want that. You don't want to buy a mattress that somebody else has been sleeping on and dribbling all their DNA all over it. Helix 
They're, they're uh, alone in the world of mattress sales. They will actually send you a mattress that nobody else has slept or fucked on before. They send everyone brand new mattresses. That's what I just said. Let's say that in a nicer way instead of as vulgar as you just did. Well, no, there's some of these companies will just send you any old cum stain thing. But Helix, you know that they're brand new and they've never been slept on because they actually come in a box and you open the box and it comes to life. After it's delivered to your door, it it just comes to life right in the place you put it and you can smell the newness. You know that there's been no sperm spilled on a Helix sleep mattress before you get it. Then what you do with it from there is completely up to you in the privacy of your own home. But oh. I would advise you, if you if you want to use the 10-year warranty and the tryout for 100 nights risk-free, try not to get too many stains on it. Because if you're going to try it out for 100 nights and then decide for whatever reason you don't love it and they come and pick it up and give you your money back, don't hand them a something that smells like a Kleenex off a peep show booth floor, hand them a, what they handed you, a nice clean mattress. Anyway, they've even got financing options and flexible payment plans. So a great night's sleep is never far away or injurious to your bank account. And right now, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash jce that's helixsleep.com slash jce up to 200 bucks off and two free pillows just make sure to measure your head size you got to take a tape measure and wrap it around your skull around about ear level and see what the circumference is and enter that and they will send you a pillow to your exact specifications whether you have a giant bucket head or a little zippy the pinhead it's up to you 12,000 five-star <laughs> reviews. Did you know that, Brian? I did. You said that uh, Well, these previously. can't be all counterfeit. There got to be a few of them that were legitimate. They are mostly legitimate, I would assume. And I only yeah, say that mostly. because some of them have to be counterfeit, you would think. Well, you would think just by process of elimination and the law of statistics, there's going to be a few bogus ones in there. But most people don't lie about these things. HelixSleep.com. Over 1 billion hours have been slept on Helix mattresses. 15 minutes of fucking, 1 billion hours of sleeping. Helixsleep.com. That's right. Well, it's your what? show. Well, no, it's it, but it's your shows. What are you doing this week on the fine Arcadian Vanguard network of programs? Another fine week of shows this week on the Arcadian Vanguard podcast network. Get information about all the shows on Twitter at Super Podcasts or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Arcadian Vanguard. A few notes. We'll have some announcements later this month in July about some exciting new projects we're working on. Stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, the latest episode of Breaking Kayfabe with Baldrin and Barry is up right now at baldrinpod.com or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Jim, a guest you don't hear on a lot of wrestling podcasts. Jeff and Barry speak with the flying Greek Mike Pappas this week on the show. Wait a minute, who? Mike Pappas. 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 Mike Pappas. The flying Greek, Mike Pappas. He retired before I was born. Pappas. You've never seen Mike Pappas wrestle. I've never seen even a clip of him. No. Son of a gun. You know, he's, he was like five foot five and he was stocky and hairy because he's Greek, right? And, uh. <laughs> well, you don't have to say it like that. Well, no, he, you know, he's, he's not like a blonde Scandinavian fellow. 
But anyway, besides the drop kicks and the flying Greek, he did a spot. It was great. You would shoot him off toward the turnbuckles, and he would go in and do a handstand, which you never saw anybody do this, a, a headstand on the top turnbuckle. And when you ran after him, he would kick his feet out and go over the back of you and then hit you with some of them fancy drop kicks. Just a crowd-pleasing son of a gun. And probably had one of the most famous pictures ever taken with yep. Andre the Giant, having holding Mike Pappas in his arms, because Mike was like five foot five and Andre was seven foot whatever. No, it seemed like and, whenever Andre went early in his career, they found him and got him to stand yeah, next to Andre. Yeah, they found Mike Pappas. There, Mike, <laughs> come over and take a picture with Andre. And that's the, uh, actually, it was a centerfold of one of the Wrestling World magazines, and that's the picture of Andre. I had him autographed the first time I ever met him. Oh, wow. But anyway, but the flying Greek Mike Pappas, heck of a guy, and then became a jeweler in Nashville, Tennessee for the last, what, 40 years. Well, hear him today, baldrinpod.com, or look for Breaking Kayfabe with Baldrin and Bowery, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Pappas. Also want to make mention... Shut up. <laughs> also want to make mention of the latest episode of Stick to Wrestling with John McAdam at McAdamPod.com or available wherever you find your favorite podcast. This week, John welcomes Jamie Ward back to the show and they look at 1982, the summer in Georgia, Bob Backlund, the WWF champion versus Ric Flair, the NWA champion, a match not on video, but everyone who saw it said it was disappointing. <laughs> hear more about it today makeadampod.com or look for Stick to Wrestling with John McAdam wherever you find your favorite podcasts and of course the 605 Super Podcast The Mothership a special episode out right now The Mothership aka the 605 Super Podcast go to the 605 Super Podcast wherever you find your favorite podcast 605pod.com or look for the 605 Super Podcast. Once again, wherever you find your favorite podcast. The Mothership! Jesus Christ! That was for you. How many times can you say podcast? Too many. Podcast, podcast, podcast. We need a new word. Show. How about that? Just the show. That's an old the word, big but, show. but it's all right. You know what's real smart about WWE? They just got the big show and Daniel Bryan and all these guys who appear on their TV. Now they can renew those trademarks for another fucking run because they used them on TV. That's right. <laughs> they, all those guys set themselves back like, what, two or three years. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, well, we got all that settled and out of the way, and now we are joined by a guest, or about to be joined by a guest. There was a shocking story that came out just yesterday as we record this on SportsIllustrated.com about Rocky Johnson, the father of obviously Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. And the person who wrote that article was a, a historian who's been involved with a number of things, Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame books, Slam Wrestling. And we thought we would have him on to not only delve into this story, but uh, kind of discover how he discovered this and, and got on the trail to begin with. So that that historian I'm speaking of is Greg Oliver and Brian I understand that you have made the necessary arrangements to tie him into our worldwide studio here is that correct that is correct and I believe we have him on the line right now all right joining us on the program here today to talk about this week's well that escalated quickly moment in wrestling is a guy who is 
one of the premier historians in the game today. We've enjoyed his series of books, the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame books with Steve Johnson. Of course, he is the driving force behind the Slam Wrestling website. He's done numerous articles and tons of research on a variety of historical wrestling topics, and he's here now to, I guess, to be the Maury Povich on the program today. <laughs> Greg Oliver. Greg, how are you? Thank you for being here. If I'm Maury Povich, which one of you is uh, Connie Chung, right? Wasn't that who he was married to at the time? They're still I, married. You know, they are still happily are they... married, for the record. Well, thank God. Yeah, don't break them up, Greg. You've caused okay, enough well, sorry, I'm not strikes. up on my, uh, my old news guys uh, kind of references. Okay. But I got that oh. one. Okay, Maury Povich. Your young, your young people have to look them up. Yeah, well, don't worry. Our audience is, the average age of our audience is dead. Um, <laughs> but no, this week, and I, we were just talking, Brian and I, before we went on the air, this week has been a little strange for wrestling, but I thought I'd heard all the stories, or I thought, you know, nothing surprises you anymore. And And, you know, we all see stories where, a celebrity or a sports hero or someone in the public eye suddenly, well, there's an unknown child that's, you know, been uncovered and we didn't know about this. But when I got on Twitter yesterday and I was scrolling through and I got to the sportsillustrated.com tweet and the head, the, it was a, wait, what headline? Rocky Johnson, it has been discovered, has five heretofore unknown biological children in the family. And this, obviously, the article on Sports Illustrated, it was your byline. So, Greg, explain to us, if you can, how this happened, and more importantly, how you were able to, you know, uncover this still, I guess, developing series of events. They're still establishing relationships amongst all these siblings. It's uh, one of those stories that falls in your lap when you've been covering a beat for a long time. Uh, Ricky Johnson lives here in Toronto, and I've known him most of my wrestling life. I was a teenager, as you know very well, Jim. You get into the business, you have to have a few people trust you, and that's what happened. Ricky was one of the early guys that trusted me. I used to have in my phone book, I had the office written down, which was the bar where he would hang out. That was where I had the phone number where I knew to get him. And um, he was just a good guy. And so we've been in touch through the years. And uh, at his 65th birthday party, uh, I was out there and I met these people that said they were, three of them were there and they said they were sons of Rocky Johnson. And I sort of thought I knew Curtis, who is the one son of, of Rocky, uh, other than The Rock, of course, and then his sister Wanda, who lives in Toronto, who I talked to, but I've never met. And I thought okay, who are these people? And that was sort of the little genesis of things going. And then from there, Ricky explained things to me. And uh, soon enough, <laughs> I started you know, going down a path of, of putting these pieces together. They'd already all gotten into touch. And then during the process, another one comes along that uh, right after Rocky died, uh, Aaron found out that uh, Rocky was, was his father. So it was a, a crazy process to say the least, but enjoyable. Uh, and the best thing that comes out of it is they have really found a new family together. There's really no other way to put it. They've become siblings uh, and they may live on opposite ends of the country. They're from British Columbia out on the West end of Canada, all the way get to 
Nova Scotia on the east end. So they've um, they've become very close, and it's quite lovely to see from my side. Well, and uh, and obviously Ricky Johnson, for folks who didn't read the article, is Rocky Johnson's half brother, uh, the Rock's uncle. And Ricky had a, a brief career in wrestling, a, a tag teaming with Rocky and doing some, you know, independence up in the uh, Ontario and the, the Canada area. But uh, now, is all of the newfound siblings, all of them are from Canada? Or was there anyone from the States uh, added to the mix, I guess? Well, they, they were all sired in Canada, let's put it that way. The one guy did live in Florida for quite a while with his with his mom, who's passed. Uh, so yeah, so it's a very much a Canadian story, and, and here we are talking on Canada Day, even though I know it's not running on Canada Day. Uh, it's, it's Oh, Canada it's Day, that, that's like being the nicest guy in prison, Greg. Come on, Canada oh. Day. No, I, I kid, <laughs> I joke, I jest. Uh, um, but yeah, it's a Canadian story, and, and you're right, it, it's... Um, Rocky, well, it was the territory of business, right? And the one guy actually figured out from all the different Rocky Johnson results exactly what night he was probably conceived because he was coming to oh St. Catharines, Ontario, which is near Niagara Falls, Ontario, and figured out that was probably the night I was conceived. So, again, technology's changed some of these things. We've got these DNA tests. You have all these results. You can figure out things maybe you didn't need to know. Well, yeah, that's the uh, that's the manner and the method that they kind of all found each other, right? Because now with the new uh, DNA tests, as you said, Ancestry.com or whatever, people are, are being alerted to the fact of who they might be related to. And I guess in some cases that's a blessing, in some cases it's a curse. Um but the uh, I was the, just the say, say Jim that it's not a wrestling specific story, and that's the best thing about not this this but what we've gotten out of the response so far is so many people saying we have similar stories, right? My dad never told right. us about this other child, and it, it's it's very common. And because of the technology change, uh, and and twenty three me and all these things, we are getting a lot more of these stories out there. It's just not very often you wake up and you realize you're, you know, related to one of the most famous people on the planet. Yeah, and and I think they made a great point. Uh, pretty much universally, all of them said that you know they don't have anything against the Rock, Dwayne, and and it, this is no reflection on him or you know fault of his, and they don't want anything from him. They just, you know, for one, I think was it the young lady had a specific, you know, just a hard time dealing with her father didn't want her. She tried to make contact and and. You know, it, it he wouldn't go along with it. So this is kind of helping them at this point find the rest of their family. And I, I don't know how to ask this question. Have they quit looking? Because is when something like this happens, we oh we found five of them. I mean, and Brian, you're more sports oriented minded than I am. You're here in this country. Uh, Herschel Walker, they found two or three of his here lately, didn't they? I think they found one, and then they found two more. So three well, altogether know, they, in the last month. The light was better where they were looking in the second place. <laughs> um, but I mean, at that point, is is it kind of like a DUI? You know, however many times you get caught, how many more times did you do it? Have they, have the siblings all said, "Well, we guess this is the group," or are they continuing to investigate? 
So Lisa's the filmmaker and, and sort of the anchor of the story in many ways, the, the conduit by which a lot of it was told. And she is a very spiritual kind of person and, and you know, in touch with nature and all those kind of things. And, and she's adamant that there's at least two more out there. She thinks they're probably down in Georgia. There's some familiar ties to um, that area from uh, the other brothers. There were five brothers uh, that all came from that family that Rocky was from. Um, three were with one father and two were from another father, if I'm remembering correctly. And so, yeah, they, they did have some ties to Atlanta where the last brother who was alive besides Ricky uh, just passed away recently. His name was, well, they called him Bob. Um so, yeah, they think there's one more or maybe two more down in Atlanta. And who knows? There's another story that I'd completely sort of forgotten about. And somebody asked me about, well, what about this woman down in California? So there was a woman in California who had basically presented herself to Rocky at an event and said, I'm your daughter. And he said, oh, well, let's do a DNA test. And then she never did. So that still could be the case. Maybe this emboldens her to, to actually go do the DNA test. I don't know. But I suspect there's probably more out there. I don't think uh, Rocky was a guy of, of many limits. Hey, Greg, if I could ask, where did that story come from, that Rocky was the one who volunteered to take the DNA test and she vanished? Well, that's what I heard from Rocky, if I remember. Rocky, <laughs> <laughs> but but I mean, again, as your son becomes one of the most famous people in the world, I'm sure he had that happen more than once. Yeah. Just the, and just and, the wild and also... Um... <sighs> I guess what I'm saying is the the recognized children uh, that Rocky had, you talked about the two older ones, were from his first marriage, and they were on record. And then The Rock, Dwayne, came along, what, 20, no, not 20, but uh, at least 10 years later. Some of these children, or did all of these children happen in the interim or did some come after Dwayne? Uh, Dwayne is the youngest of all of them. Absolutely. 100%. And, uh, so this was a sixties type of situation where all of the children were mostly born in the, in the sixties. And, you know, cause I'm just thinking, you know, the thing is the rock on young rock or the rock in any interviews, he never tells stories about the Carolinas and, and, uh, Rocky Johnson as Sweet Ebony Diamond was a big star right before he went to the WWF in 83, 84. He was a big star in the Carolinas under the mask. And uh, The Rock has no stories for it. And that was probably, with the exception of the WWF run, Rocky Johnson's last big money run. He was a big baby face. You pr you saw him in Toronto, did you not, at that point? Well, he was definitely up there. Are you old enough? But well, I, I, this is the embarrassing part. I, I didn't get into wrestling till Hulkamania ran wild all over me. Ah, oh, son of a gun! <laughs> I know. Well, it, at least, at least he didn't come all over you like with God's wrath, like Miro does, <laughs> or Rocky, apparently. But okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. Well, anyway, but I'm saying, you know, Rocky Johnson was a big baby face. Spent a lot of time in the Carolinas. Um. The Carolinas had lovely women. Uh, he it, a lot of time in Tennessee. Um, it both in the seventies and right at the end of his career. And I'm just wondering if if we need to to follow Rocky's booking 
sheets on a uh, on an atlas to try to narrow down potential places to search. An atlas with a birth a birth records, yeah, it is quite possible. And but again, he's not alone in this. And and you, we saw it with a lot of these people responding to this story. It's like you know, oh, my dad was in rodeo, and he has a couple of kids in here and there. It it, it was part of the lifestyle. And and I'm sure you saw some of that yourself, Jim. I mean, it doesn't make it right or wrong necessarily. That depends on your perspective. But there were a lot of people out there just sowing their wild oats because they could, because there was no wrestling, especially like there's no laws. I, I often have talked about like in hockey when I covered hockey or, or I just did a book with John Gibbons from from baseball. These guys at least had a manager or a general manager or a trainer or somebody that's looking out for them a little bit, right? Wrestling had none of that. Nobody to report to until you got to the actual arena. So you had all that free time to kill. Nobody was getting you on that bus or wherever you needed to go for the next time. Your time was all your own. So it was a, it's the wild west. Well, and yeah, and as we've talked about also, you're on television, you're making in some territories, a lot of money, depending on the guy and the spot. Um, you know, it, it was, it was like the rock and roll uh, lifestyle tour, but, and I've known guys that, you know, I've known well enough on a personal basis that they say, yeah, you know, I had a kid with so-and-so and such and such, and they pay child support, or maybe they don't have a relationship or maybe they do, but, and Brian, I mean, this is not something that would have been written down in any other historical pieces, but have you ever heard this is just like the all-time champion, especially to find out all at one time. Have you ever heard about anybody in the wrestling business being outed or it called attention to that they suddenly had, you know, five extra kids that nobody knew about? Well, this is it's yeah. There have been children that pop up and point the fingers at different people, but no one as prolific apparently as Rocky Johnson. Yes, I mean we're we're going for we're going for Guinness status here. And I, I, some people maybe say, well, you know, Greg, you you knew uh, Ricky, but uh, what do you know about Rocky Johnson? Rocky had spoken to you at first about that, his ill-fated autobiography that went through a number of hands. Uh, at one time, you had spoken to him about being his co-writer on that. Absolutely. So I've known Rocky since I think we met in 2003, if I'm remembering right. Uh, you know, Ricky always was a friend of mine. And, and when his brother was coming up to Toronto with his um, third wife, Sheila, uh, my wife and I, and we, we went for dinner with them. Um, so that was my first chance to meet Rocky Johnson. And what I remember about it is I brought a copy of the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, the Canadians, and he'd gotten it the night before. I think must have given it to Ricky to give to Rocky. And when I saw them at dinner, Sheila said to me, he read that damn book all night. Like it was just fascinating because at the time there wasn't a lot of books like that one, right? They'd go back and capture all these guys you'd forgotten about, right? The guys that he knew growing up in Hamilton and, and learning the business. So the Ernie Moores, the guys that, you know, never became big stars anywhere else, but they were in this book. So he loved it. Right. His original publicity photo was in there. So we kept in touch through the years. You know, he might be in Toronto for something. He came up with a WWF food bank thing. Um, he came up when his brother Mervyn was dying uh, to say goodbye, and we had breakfast, you know, that kind of thing. So we'd always kept in touch. And when he wanted to do a book, he got in touch. I mean, I'm a writer. He knows that. 
Um, so we talked about it, and I thought we had a deal. In fact, ECW Press had put together the deal, the contract, uh, which I had signed and had sent. It had been sent to Rocky to sign. Uh, it was exciting for ECW Press because he was also a Canadian, so they could get double the tax credit. Um, <laughs> but but it, it, it's a small part of publishing, right? But uh, the, that extra right. few thousand dollars go a long way to making profitability for a book. And so, yeah, we had a, we had a contract that was signed on my part that I never got response to. And I never heard why uh, he never, so he ghosted me, I guess is, is what the kids say. And, and, you know, whatever I moved on. In fact, I, I think I turned out better because I didn't end up doing that book. And of course it ended up being a huge mess anyway, which has been covered to a degree before, but, um, you know, the rocks people stepped in and had the book pulled, um, a mid-level publisher like ECW press isn't going to be able to fight the rocks people. Let's be realistic. Well, and I guess now I'm realizing, and Brian, I know your age. I'm the only person in this conversation that actually saw Rocky Johnson wrestle in his, in his prime or in maybe in person. Did you ever see him in person at all, Brian? No, I never saw Rocky Johnson. When I first became a big fan, Rocky Johnson wasn't around. Like, there were a few years where, I mean, maybe if you were following the indies, you may see seen his name, but he wasn't really a figure around wrestling when I became a fan. Well, we talked about this before. He had two really big runs at the end there. The Crockett run as Sweet Ebony Diamond, and then the WWF run with Tony Atlas, and they were tag team champions. And then for what, from 1985 through 87, it was pretty much... Polynesian Pro and Memphis and the territory was down there and he didn't last long and had some issues and and then no one saw him on TV again until The Rock until Rocky Maivia yeah. showed up and brought his dad with him on TV a few times and that was as we mentioned uh, or as we were talking about uh, Brian and I before we went on the air again Greg Rocky Johnson didn't linger on he was he was a main event guy for most of his career, and then suddenly those last couple of years, and he's in his mid-40s, and the territories go away, and boom, and you don't see Rocky Johnson anymore. But in his prime, and I didn't even get to see him till 76, um, so he'd been in the business, what, 12, 13, 14 years, somewhere around there from his start of his training at that point. He was amazing. Because not only the athleticism, but the physique, he had the big chest and the big arms. He was, it wasn't a competition bodybuilder, but he had a great physique. He worked out, and especially in some of the territories back then, you know, that was unique. But at the same time, he could do the drop kicks, and he could, you know, it sounds like now Cornette's going to be complimenting flippy wrestlers. He could take the backdrop and land on his feet and throw the drop kick, but he did it at six feet tall and 250 pounds with a bodybuilder physique. And he'd put both of those feet right on the guy's forehead. Uh, doing the Ali shuffle, the fucking quick jabs. It was, he was exciting and he got over and drew money. And I think you mentioned in your article, Greg, that he had actually even more of an underrated type of career. He was on top more and in better spots for longer than people realize today. I think it's because that, like we said, he had the last two runs of his career and then faded off right as home video became a thing. So he's 
the generation before we have video to see how good he was. That's an excellent point. And I, that was actually Meltzer that said, you know, because he's not in the, the uh, Observer Hall of Fame. And he probably should be based on, you know, the number of places that he was on top. And that's the nature of the business, though, right? At the time, right? He was territorial. He would go from place to place and be on top for a good amount of time, but never really stayed in one spot for a long time. And when we talk about his WWF run there right at the end, I mean, he was not there a long time. And it's almost criminal to say that was, you know, when everybody talks about that being the most meaningful part of his career, because it wasn't. He would have been making oodles of money out there in San Francisco, working with Pat Patterson and Ray Stevens and all those guys. It, it's yeah, it, it, but that's revisionist history, isn't it? It's WWF saying, "Hey, look, he was our. They were the first black champions together. They weren't the first black, you know, tag team champion, but they were the first black tag team champions together." Well, and and Which, also Sonny King, I guess, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> and hey, uh, Strongbow was Italian. As that doesn't really count, but um, you were going to say we, Native well, Americans for another minority, and then you remembered he was Italian. Yeah, well, yeah, I was going to say they could have been the 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 black and red express or whatever. Um, but Strongbow's Italian, so That's right. <laughs> nevertheless, and yeah, that is one thing you bring up that Rocky Johnson. It was not. I think a lot of the uh, romantic stories of nostalgic days of Rocky, the Rock's youth on Young Rock, center on. Rocky Johnson not making any money in in that last run in Memphis in 1987 when everything sucked, or maybe not making any money in Polynesian Pro because by that time there wasn't really money out there or whatever. But flea market it, one, yeah, like the, the flea market, yeah. Too, yeah. Uh, but in like you said, in California and San Francisco and Los Angeles, Rocky Soul Man Johnson in the 60s was a huge deal, and he was on top for Roy Shire, and he would have made big time cow palace payoffs and of the the uh, um the way that he came into Tennessee we've told his story but it's been a few years we've got a lot of new listeners you probably know but Brian you remember but the the same month and year that Muhammad Ali fought Antonio Inoki in Japan the only boxer versus wrestler match that actually made money was Jerry Lawler versus Rocky Johnson. Because Ali and Inoki, as everybody recalls, ended up being not only a critical failure, but a financial flop because nobody gave a shit, except for in the Northeast where Bruno came back to, you know, get revenge on Hanson. But with all the publicity in the papers, Jerry Jarrett said, I got an idea. And he brought a boxer into Memphis to face Jerry Lawler, boxer versus wrestler, Rocky Johnson. And he got this on the news, the actual local television news in Memphis, Tennessee. Boxer Rocky Johnson from Houston, Texas, with a such and such record. He's been a sparring partner for George Foreman. <laughs> and he's going to face Jerry. And they drew over 10,000 people at the Mid-South Coliseum based on the Ali and Noki publicity for a fight that nobody in Memphis wanted to see. But they bring in a guy that's been a wrestler for 15 years, call him a boxer. He'd never wrestled there. Nobody knew the difference and put him against Lawler and they fucking did 10,000 people. So then all of a sudden after that, Jared said, fuck, we're going to teach him how to wrestle within a month. Wouldn't you know who won the pony? 
he had trained to be a successful professional wrestler. With only four weeks' experience, he's back wrestling Lawler. <laughs> and they drew nothing but money. And But you could get away with that back then, but it was from that point on, Rocky Johnson was a name in Tennessee. He came back again a couple years later, came back again a couple years later when Lawler was out with the broken leg and they were trying everything, but he always stayed over as a drawing card in, in the Tennessee Territory. And one of the few outside guys really to do that. It generally, as a, a top baby face, you had to be a homesteader. But he, he did it. That's, That's not even a question, is it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, he just loves telling the stories. But I, but I think Rocky had that ability, right? Like, he knew he could draw money. And and he did have some legit boxing skills, right? He he, he wasn't right. immune to it and had met those guys along the way, um, you know, the different boxers. And, and so it worked. And, and that's a credit to the, the Memphis guys and, and Rocky being able to adjust at that point in his career, right? It is a little later. Um, he'd already well, and, his, and also he was actually, business. he was actually a better worker than any greater boxer that ever got into wrestling afterwards. So, you know, it's, it's mutually exclusive skills, but he could work boxing better than the real boxers. He also never pandered. And, and that's one thing they did get right in the, the young rock stuff is he never did the typical African-American shtick. Right. They never did yeah. the watermelon stuff with him or this and that. So he stood for what he believed. Now, this has been talked about before, but I mean, racism in, in eastern Canada, Nova Scotia, where he's growing up, it's not that it didn't exist. It's just it's going to be a different racism than if you grew up in Mississippi or or Tennessee or something. So he came at it with a different perspective as he moved across um, the country and and well, the world, really. But I mean, because he traveled across Canada first, I think he really got emboldened, right? He understood what he was doing, moving from Hamilton to Toronto to Calgary to Vancouver and, and his trips back east to work um, out in uh, Atlantic Canada. So he, he was already a developed wrestler before he went down to the States and started working in LA and San Francisco. So he had confidence about him that he was able to say to a promoter, no, I'm not going to be your step and fetch it or that kind of thing, right? Yeah. Well, and and that's the thing is that um, Rocky they 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 made his gimmick hometown Houston, Texas, because I don't know maybe he didn't look like a guy that needed to be from Amherst, Nova Scotia, or whatever. That's sort of like a guy named Reggie changing his name to Crusher. It doesn't sound you know, but but besides the the nod to the nickname the Soul Man and Soul Patrol later on in with Atlas. You're right. He didn't do any black shtick. And because, and like you said, because he was Canadian, he had, you know, it, it wasn't part of his vocabulary anyway. It wasn't like suddenly he's going to turn into Tom Boogaloo Shaft, who's from Mississippi or whatever. <laughs> so the, it, it was, he was a black baby face that got over like in Memphis where there was a heavy African-American population, but he wasn't, he wasn't doing goofy shit. He wasn't doing stereotypical shit. It's just he was a top guy. Now, on and Brian doesn't watch Young Rock, so I got to fill you in on this, Brian. The scene, they were going to go work in Jonesboro, and somehow Jonesboro had a different promoter 
than the Memphis Territory did. He'd been booked out to Jonesboro. So, you know, the behind the scenes thing is all whacked anyway. But Rocky shows up, Brian, in the, the, the Jonesboro Coliseum, like there exists such a thing. And he walks into his first class locker room and sits down and the promoter brings in a tray of fried chicken and watermelon for Rocky as a prop to do his promo about his opponent that night. Yeah, you'll just be sitting there eating your fried chicken and watermelon. And Rocky said, nah, I ain't going to do that. And he takes, he doesn't take the guy's money. He walks out, right? Even though he needs it. Now that is, what do they call that? Greg, you're a, you're a published author. They, they call that kind of a, um, of an aphorism. Is that, am I using that correctly for something that may have happened? It is like a, an example of, of how Rocky wouldn't go along with racism. But there was two things wrong with the, the scene. One. Well, you, the, 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 well, the part you need to add, though, though, is that The Rock was standing there as a kid. So he's yeah. seeing that lesson from his father. Yes. So that's, that's the definite takeaway that's out of there. But you're right. I agree. Okay, keep going. Sorry, I want well, to Well, the, the, the two things that made this particular incident completely and utterly impossible is number one, they showed him into a first-class locker room in the Jonesboro Coliseum. <laughs> and secondly, when they brought the fried chicken and watermelon out, it looked like it had just come from the kitchen at Morton's Steakhouse. If you had actually brought that tray of chicken and watermelon out to anybody, white, black, Mexican, Russian, anybody working Jonesboro in the fucking 80s, they would have been all over that shit like uh, fucking that's that's their last meal. That was the most appetizing looking thing I've ever we had no catering back then. They had no you couldn't get a free fucking bottle of water. Did they do a lot of promos at the arena shows in Jonesboro in the ring? No, no, that's what I mean. It was it was it was a it was a completely made up scene out of whole cloth to illustrate that the rock learned from his father Rocky not to do any stereotypical offensive stuff, but it would, no, I would just die and laughing at the goddamn the promoter in Jones, but Eddie Marlin would have gone to town on that goddamn tray of chicken and watermelon. <laughs> it was a great, if you'd ever been to the to the, uh, concession stand in the Jonesboro Legion arena or later the Earl bell community center, which apparently was what was passing for the Jonesboro Coliseum. Oh, you know that raccoon they shot down out of that tree in that Jerry Clower story? They were selling it on a stick <laughs> at the concession stand in Jonesboro. Hey, Greg, if I could ask you a question uh, that I was thinking about from the article, and it's something I did not ask you on the mothership, but you make reference in the article, you know, no one knows about these kids. Reading this article is the first time Jim heard about this, me, and just about everyone else, almost everyone else. And in the article, you reference the fact that when Rocky left where he was, where he fathered these children, other wrestlers actually looked out for them, which opens the idea that other wrestlers were aware of these other children. Do you know what wrestlers were actually aware of or looked after Rocky Johnson's children when he left the territory? So there was only the one instance where this really came up. So where Lisa Purves is, is the one that was the... Um, filmmaker and she's sort of the, the center of the article just because she's like the strong one but it, telling a documentary of her own story 
and and her own progress trying to get through this. And as Jim alluded to, she she's had all kinds of issues, you know, depression, trying to deal with you know the the lack of a father figure. So she her mom lived in a place right across the street from basically where all the wrestlers lived, right? Like in Vancouver, they had like a little. I guess you'd call it almost like a townhouse or a, a flop house, right? Where the wrestlers would be coming in and staying for their short amount of time and then leaving instead of having the rent spot. Because Vancouver was very much a territory where the guys would come in and maybe then go to Vancouver or sorry, and then go to Japan or then go down to Hawaii or wherever, because it was a good transient spot. You could have guys there for a week and then they'd move on somewhere else. And then you'd still have your homesteaders. So she met Rocky at one of those spots. And they started dating. So she already knew the other wrestlers that, that would be staying at this, you know, house next door. So they knew like Moose Murowski, who was the local guy, or Abdullah the Butcher was a young guy coming up around the same time, who was one of them that definitely knew about this baby. And Lisa said that Abdullah the Butcher would look out for them and bring them a little bit of cash or maybe diapers or things like that. These are stories she heard. Um, years later, when Lisa tried to get in touch with Rocky, Moose Murawski, who's gone now too, actually went to Rocky in Hawaii and said, your daughter is trying to get in touch with you. Can you please, you know, do it? And so he did that. But Rocky said no to him and said he didn't want to talk to Lisa. So I'm just trying to remember how Lisa explained all this. But the fact of the matter is that he went home and said, oh, I didn't do it to Lisa instead of, so he was protecting her. He didn't. Instead of having to tell her that, yeah. That that Rocky wanted nothing to do with him. Yeah. So, I mean, there's that aspect out there for sure. We're uh, certainly lots of wrestlers knew. Uh, Ricky knew that his brother had a few other kids. Uh, They didn't know about them all, um, nor could you (laughs) a lot. Uh, but yeah, it's quite fascinating. Uh, and, and Lisa having gone through all that, that was, that was the one example that comes up when you think of that, when you ask me that question there, Brian. Has there been any pushback at all from the rocks camp about this article? I mean, this is a pretty mainstream appearance. Sports Illustrated still a big deal. Any pushback at all? Um, not pushback. The, the rocks people were asked to, were informed about all this at least a month ago. Um, and I know they had talks with people higher up at Sports Illustrated than I, than I am and certainly my editor. And so he was feeding stuff back to me. So they knew about this, but they also knew about most of these kids, at least since Rocky's death. So this, none of these people were really news to the people in the family or, you know, in general. It's just, it was news to the public. All these people have been very public on their Facebook posts calling each other brothers and sisters. You could have done the math um, if you wanted before now. It's just putting this story out there so publicly uh, has been an issue. The one son, Curtis, who was um, from the first marriage to Una Sparks and lives in Toronto, he's been a little upset by it all. But there's no leg to stand on, right? There's nothing actionable. You can't defame a dead person, number one. But, I mean... What's there in there that's bad to Curtis or to Wanda? It's just presenting the facts of these other children. And again, they're not asking for anything. They're not saying, hey, Rock, you're our brother now. Fly us down to Miami. Buy us a house. You can film it. They're not oh, come on now. He likes there, doing There are that. a lot of people <laughs> expecting that now, yes. You can't expect the Rock to spend all his money on film crews. But <laughs> here's the thing. 
Speaking of film, the obviously the uh, uh, Lisa, who's the young lady that's that's a filmmaker and is doing a documentary, and this was brought on again not because it was wrestling, but because it was her trying to come to grips with her, the complicated relationship or lack of that she had with her father, and it became then it's becoming a documentary. Are you going to keep us up to date and post it on? The documentary as it goes forward, if it goes forward, if it's completed, where it goes, uh, anything on slam wrestling to keep us up to date so we know how this all comes out. Yeah, I, I would. I definitely hope to. Uh, Lisa's become a pretty good friend through this process. Like she really is the spokesperson for the family um, with all those other. Because I mean, you're you're dealing with four different personalities uh, besides her, right? And and they're all from different walks of life. She at least works in media and works in film, so understands what I need. And so she's been great. Whereas, you know, if you if you grew up and, and you do construction, you don't maybe know my needs the same way as as a journalist, right? Uh, for sure, she's going to keep me in the loop. Uh, she's actually going to lower herself. She wants to put me on film. Uh, I haven't told her my rate yet, though, so that may be an issue. <laughs> Uh, you, but yeah, she I, should, I she should just re- record you on audio, Greg. You sound so much better on audio. There you go. Yeah. Well, then you look on video. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. No, I know. And that, but I, I, along the way, well, that brings up the Sweet Daddy Siki documentary that I worked on. Um, and Siki was one of Rocky's mentors. And for that matter, I mean, the boots that the Rock wore were directly from Sweet Daddy Siki, right? They were inspired by him with the cutouts at the back and but the the Siki is, is interesting too because you you learn about these different people and and he must have known some of these things about rocky through the years and i'm sure they all have their own secrets and many of them are going to take them with them when they're when they're gone and we we should just uh, instead of glossing over that everybody in the world knows who sweet daddy Siki is he was a pioneering trailblazing African-American talent in the wrestling business who started even before Rocky and was Siki was working in the fifties, right? Oh yeah. And, absolutely. Yeah. No, he started in LA with uh, Sanders Abel and those guys. Yeah. And, uh, then later on became a, uh, uh, country music star and a musician released albums, all that stuff and wrestled for uh, not continuously, but didn't he wrestle like 40 or 45 years after his debut, a few matches, he wrestled at an advanced age. I remember that. Yeah, well, he he was supposed to be on that tour with the Bear Man, uh, where Adrian Adonis and and um, Pat Kelly died, along with Bear Man McKinney. So he was supposed to be on that tour. So after that crash, he never wrestled again. So that was 88. So he wrestled, yeah, that's 40 years. That's a pretty good run. <sighs> Uh, and, and pioneered the bleach blonde hair look that they gave to Shelton Benjamin later on. And when people would tell <laughs> Shelton, he looked like sweet daddy Seeky, he'd go, what the fuck? Because even I didn't go deep enough in the catalog to teach him about sweet daddy Seeky. But, um, <laughs> speaking of teaching us, when are you doing another pro wrestling hall of fame book with Steve or what's next in the way of projects? I love all of the writing you do and all the research you do on these stories and people that would otherwise be forgotten. Thanks, Jim. I appreciate that. You know, it, it's there's always more to write about. It's just what's worth my time. It sometimes comes up, right? Or our projects may be interesting, but I've got to justify, you know, living. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
Because, yeah, the wrestling business ain't really good for that. Uh, so I have a book with John Gibbons, the former Blue Jays manager. I played for the Mets, and I know um, Brian's pretty excited. He's a big Mets fan. Oh, uh, that's boy. coming out in the spring. By the way, what Greg meant to say is he played for the Mets. He also managed the Blue Jays in that order. Okay, yes, exactly. It's a different way around. Yeah, I didn't come back. Well, he could help the Mets today, maybe. I don't know. Um, Greg, you didn't genuflect toward the Mets' direction uh, <laughs> properly enough for Brian there. But continue with the things you're going to be doing. Um, the the one that's going to shake the world is uh, Medusa's book. I worked with Medusa Michelli on her book, uh, who was a Lundra Blaze in WWE. She has a remarkable story um, on its own. But the fact that she then went from, you know, pro wrestling into monster trucks is insane. Yeah. There's never been a book for adults on monster trucks. So we're breaking all kinds of new ground there. So it's, uh, I'm hoping it ends up being a little bit like the Mick Foley idea where, you know, it gets mainstream attention to something that's never been out there because I've now met and talked to a lot of these monster truck people. And there's certainly possibilities for more books out there. Um, other than that, I'm not exactly sure what's up wrestling wise. So I'm always open for the next idea. If it's going to make me a few bucks, uh, you know, the Resi book did pretty well and, uh, you know, you want to keep plugging away. Uh, the slam stuff continues to write itself, right? One week we may have a great story on Ranger Ross who nobody ever <laughs> writes about. And then next week we have something on, on some indie person you've never heard of that just has an interesting story. I'd like the ability to do different things and not chase the same old same old rumors and just be a tweet machine like so many of these sites are these days, right? It's actually talking to people. Like that's probably the some of these great sites are out there doing good work and others are just yeah, they're compilers, right? They just retweet things or they just collect things that other people have done and never broken new ground and and we continue to break new ground on a regular basis at Slam. And that's and it, and like we always say, if news breaks, we take it back and get a refund. <laughs> and if you when you mentioned Ranger Ross, I just got to tell you this real quick because it just it reminded me of Bobby Eaton. Anything that reminds me of Bobby Eaton is fucking hilarious. But Ranger Ross, as you know, he had the he was in the service and he was in the invasion of, or at least this was the story. And I mean, you know, I never know anymore, right? I believe these things because they were telling the boys, but. He was in the invasion of Granada, and he was a paratrooper. And then, of course, that Ranger Ross, right? And he was very military and tried to portray that and wasn't a bad worker, but just one of those things in WCW didn't make it. But when he first got there, right, and they were first telling a story, he walked in the locker room one night, and Bobby Eaton looked at me and said, Hey, Corn, did you hear that they dropped him out of a helicopter in Grenada? <laughs> I I think he went of his own accord, Bobby. I don't think they dropped, but it just the way he phrased it. It was hilarious to me. It was the Bobby Eaton delivery corn. Did you know they dropped him out of a helicopter in Grenada? Yeah, you should see the way they threw him out of the back of that truck in Pittsburgh. <laughs> All right. You remember his anyway. finish? What's his finishing maneuver, Jim? Ranger Ross. Ranger Ross. Oh my God, what was it? I can't remember. The combat kick. That's right. And it was made out of potatoes. <laughs> oh, anyway, Greg, thank you for being a, a, a guest here on the program today and bringing us up to date on this. We think we've heard all of the 
wild, shocking stories that we're going to hear. And then suddenly somebody like you, you no good muckraker, comes up with one of those wait what headlines that we've got to delve a little bit deeper into. And they can do that at slamwrestling.com, right? They can buy all, are all of the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame books by Greg Oliver and Steve Johnson. Are they still available on the, uh, the Amazon and everything? Yeah, it's it's sorry, it's slamwrestling.net because Slam sorry. Slam, somebody sitting on it doesn't want to sell it and it was a little out of our price range. Well, um, those bastards. Yeah, no, of course. Exactly. The the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, the Canadians is out of print, um but all the rest of them are out there. I I really encourage like people haven't seen the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, the storytellers or heroes and icons were the ones that that came a little bit later. Uh, those ones are amazing books. They're huge too. They're, they're just packed full of content. And and I know you may not be a fan of storytellers because it's got you know Jericho and and Omega <laughs> on the cover, but we were trying to illustrate a point of how wrestling had changed. Right? You can start a Twitter war and then and lead to a program. You know things have changed, and and that was part of what the book was all about. Is is well, storytelling whether, whether... change. Whether they're storytellers or cautionary tales, whichever, you still do great <laughs> books. But yeah, you've done the baby faces, the heels, the tag teams, the heroes and icons, the the uh, as you said, the Canadians, which is out of print, fittingly enough. Um, boy, Canada can't get any respect on this program. But uh, anybody that wants anything, uh, wants to learn anything about wrestling history, can learn bunches of stuff by reading any of those books. Brian. Greg, I've never, I don't think I've ever actually asked you this, but if you don't mind, before you go, you brought up the uh, Hall of Fame Canadians book. What is the story about what happened with you and Bret Hart? Was it about that book? Uh, okay, well, yeah, this is going to go another couple of minutes then, but that's fine. Um, long story short, Bret was not happy about the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, the Canadians. And he was ranked number 14 all time. <laughs> Um, there's no question in anyone's mind, as far as I will, in my mind, that Whipper Watson was the greatest Canadian wrestler of all time. He was our gorgeous George. And if this does not explain the differences between the U.S. and Canada, I don't know what else was. <laughs> you know, he was the guy that sold all the TVs, right? A hero that, you know, let's have with a safety club and all these kind of things. And then you've got yeah. gorgeous George selling all the TVs you know, in the late 1940s, early 1950s, right? He's a villain. Um, so with Billy Watson changed the game. And without him, there is no Canadian wrestling. So he's number one. And, you know, I remember talking to Gene Kaniski once, and I said, Gene, you're number six in my book. And he, and he was all upset. And he goes, well, wait, who's in front of me? And I said, Whipper Billy Watson, Yvonne Robert, Killer Kowalski, Mad Dog and Fashon, and Earl McCready. And then it was just sort of silence on the phone, and he goes, "I'm okay with that." Yeah. So, so it's a, it's a Brett ego thing. Uh, I've got no problem with Brett. Never have. I was at his house once. Um, got a Christmas card from him one year. So somewhere along the way, he got really upset about the ranking there. Um, Dave Meltzer said there's a few other things that were involved with him being upset. He had chances to say things to me in public. Um, we were at the Cauliflower Alley Club. Scott Demore and I hosted a, a night for Canadians at the Cauliflower Alley Club, and Brett was there. Never said anything to me in person. Like directly took me aside. Instead, he chose at the Iowa, you know, International Wrestling Hall of Fame to take myself and Steve Johnson the task for being journalists who don't know the wrestling business. And if you've never taken a bump, you should never be able to write about pro wrestling. 
um, all those kind of things. And, and the rant, it has been documented. Uh, there's a transcript have actually on, on flamewrestling.net if somebody wants it. It's, uh, it's disappointing. And then from that point forward, Brett never wanted anything to do with the site. Um, and, and he was a columnist for us, right? He was a big part of slam wrestling becoming what it was. He had to deal with the Calgary Sun. Uh, we were able to run his columns. So, yeah, Brett was very important to my career, uh, to the sites, the growth of the site. Uh, and it's disappointing the way it happened. Um, but you forgive a little bit. He had a lot of strokes. He's had a lot of family issues. Um, and again, my problem was never with Brett. He had a problem with me. I, I think that's a fundamental part to remember. Do you think you now, did that let, answer let, it, Brian? That's a- yeah, it answers my question. But one other thing, because you wrote that book a long time ago, do you think if you wrote that book today, Brett would be ranked the same way today? Or do you think the way people evaluate him and look at him today and the fact that so many of the top wrestlers cite him, does that change the way you see Brett today as opposed to really right after his career ended? Right. So part of our deal was if you were an active wrestler, we weren't going to put you in the top 25. Right. And so that, that continued on for all the other books. Right. So when you talked about the greatest heroes and icons, I mean, John Cena would be in there for sure, but he wasn't in our top 25 because he was still active. So that was the same with Brett. His career was only just ending as that book came out. And so he's not, I mean, he's in the top 25 and his career, I don't know. You're right. I think it maybe did grow in, in legacy afterwards because you had all these guys come afterwards who talked about what an influence he was, right? And how game-changing the Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart days were that really changed pro wrestling from being the bigger plotting guys to, well, it started the path to where we are today. They're not the only ones, of course, but that's part of it. So, yes, there's there's obviously changes that are going to be done um, through the years, but then by the same token, you also learn more about other guys, right? Hans Schmidt probably deserved to be ranked higher than he was. Right. Just when you learn about his career and how he was so daring, really, for the time. Right. The kind of character he portrayed. I mean, that takes a lot more bravery to me than being on WWE TV and, uh, you know, knocking Americans. I don't know. It's it's a subjective game. And nobody's ever said I'm the only one, only voice that matters. And I certainly never said that. Everyone's tried to clear opinion. And I, uh, you know, I did my best with it. In in all fairness, the other ones were Steve and I. (laughs) But in all fairness, any top whatever list is subjective when you're dealing with art. Uh, It's not like who ran the five fastest miles. You can stopwatch that. It's it's painting or it's music, the five greatest rock and roll songs or whatever. So it's always subjective. But in all fairness, also. You wrote a book on tag teams. You did not name the Midnight Express the number one tag team. Did I threaten to beat you up or cuss you out? No, no I did but not. You said, you said something, uh, yeah, in the, in the copy of the book you signed, yes, you, you did not believe it. I believe it was, uh, there were some nasty words in there, but that was okay. There were some it, nasty it, it, words, but I didn't threaten to beat you up. And, no, and exactly. He had Bruiser Bedlam do it. Yeah. And besides, well, we didn't even a- make number two. Come to think of it, we, we didn't make number three. What, what number were we? Uh, I don't have it in front of me. I can't remember. It was I yeah. 11 or 12. Or so around yeah, the that was. come to think of it, you son of a bitch. You, you ungrateful bastard. No, all right. All right. But see, I Can didn't I tell my Bruiser Bedlam story, though? 
That was a good thing. Like, Bruiser Brandon threatened to kill me once. Yeah, yeah, no, he was a good buddy of mine. So, well, so Johnny Canine was a Hamilton guy, and a lot like tying it back into Ricky Johnson, he was an early guy in my career who let me in the door. I actually did programs for some of uh, Johnny Canine's shows that he ran in Hamilton. And so he was a friend of mine. And then years later, I'm doing slam wrestling and, and write a story about his career. And I include all the stuff about, you know, trying to blow up, uh, you know, police stations and, and some drug stuff. And when he saw me in the dressing room, he threatened to kill me. Why'd you have to write all that shit, all that kind of stuff. King Kong Bundy got up and stood in front of me. And then that calmed down, uh, Bruiser Bedlam. So that was, that was a good moment. But then years later, the only interview he ever did was with me when he got out of the, the halfway house or whatever, and that he was, um, doing acting and, and doing uh, protection work for actors and stuff like that. Like he was really trying to get out of the, you know, the, the lifestyle he was in. Okay. Last Bruce of Bedlam story. I was at the funeral and uh, I've never been at a funeral where there were more fights before the thing started <laughs> <laughs> that they were actually going to call the cops because they were, there was all family fighting this and that. And that was nuts. And then later I was told by, I think it was his wife, Tracy, that they, she was told by a few people, that guy must be a cop because I was the only person there wearing a suit. (laughs) (laughs) There was a lot of leather at that funeral. Oh, Greg, you've always looked like a narc. Come on, admit it. You were, you were born, when you were born, you looked like you were a 40 year old man. (laughs) I feel old, Jim. Anyway, so do we all. But thank you for being here today. Um, We got your plugs in. We encourage everybody to buy all of the products that we've talked about. And go to slamwrestling.net. And also, uh, keep us up to date on the progress on the documentary. And, you know, if you have any follow-ups to this story, if anything else gets uncovered, we we will give the listeners updates. Greg, thank you very much. Thank you both, guys. Well, there we go, folks. A great interview with uh, Greg Oliver, and we will keep you up to date on any further happenings, discoveries, uncoverings, or whatever the term may be for this ongoing story. You think you've heard everything, Brian. Do you think you've heard everything? When it comes to Rocky Johnson? No. Oh, no. Well, no, no. when it comes to wrestling. No. There's always so much to, to learn. When it comes to this show, have you heard everything? Just about. Except for the Dynamite review. Oh, Christ. We still got to do that, huh? All right. AEW broadcast Blood and Guts this past week. A week of June 29th was the Wednesday night. This is their big annual war games, hat on a hat type of extravaganza, where they managed to take the ultimate gimmick match and gimmick it up. Um, and not only that was one hour of the programming, it was a two hour television program. Did you see the story that went out? Well, they had to change some things last minute because of COVID. I did see that. Yeah. Do you think that's like a golly, we're sorry about the first hour of this program. We really tried to do good shit, but we gave you this because we couldn't help it. Or did anybody really get sick or are they just trying to cover their ass? I'm sure someone got sick. I don't think 
I don't think they're embarrassed about their show. Well, I don't think they have the common sense to be. But nevertheless, I was embarrassed for them. Um, let's talk about Jim Ross is now in the second Ross. Second Ross. Jim Ross is now in the second. They're on the second Jim Ross. They got rid of the first one and put in a, a phony. He's on the second hour of Dynamite, and now he's hosting Rampage. There's speculation. Um, is is JR getting too grumpy sitting through two hours of bad wrestling so that by the end of it, he's just like, oh, fuck, get me out of here. Um, they Have they put him on Rampage because the ratings of Rampage, the show that they have not given a shit about in months, has reached an all-time low over the past couple of weeks, down to 300-something thousand people. Is that possibly a ploy to get jr back on the or get him on that show to get some of the viewers back but no otherwise they had taz tony and excrement start the program and i'd love to hear more taz anytime but as we saw pretty much at the forbidden door no matter if they got howard cosell if they got john madden if they got pick your era of great sportscaster as long as Sockface is still sitting there, it's the shits. Can we all agree on that? In terms of the commentary, I've been saying for a while that it's a problem and it's all three. And there's a lot of people who want to ignore that it's all three. There are a lot of people who all of a sudden like that Tony Schiavone's the modern David Crockett. <laughs> I think it's terrible. But there are people who, for some reason, like it. I think he's used perfectly as the interviewer as long as you could tell him not to act like an idiot which seems to be a problem. Tony constantly, he'll see this bullshit that if he'd have seen this working for Crockett Promotions, it would have been followed by a bunch of the boys hitting the ring to beat up whoever was doing the fake phony shit. And Tony just laughs at, oh, that's great. And that's what he does. And that's why he's terrible on commentary. Jim Ross is miserable on commentary. And if he's not miserable, he sounds miserable, which is just about the same thing when it comes to a commentary. And I think if the idea, because they did it on the pay-per-view, and then on Dynamite, he came out for the second hour, which ended up being the main event, the entire second hour. The idea of bringing out Jim Ross for either just the second hour or just the main event may be the single best way to use him. He'll get a pop every time you hit that music and the fans get to cheer for him because he's a legend. And he's going to be out there not long enough to get tired of everything and everyone. Because it's clear that him and Excalibur don't necessarily see eye to eye on things. And he's made shots on commentary. Well, again, I forget who it was. Someone debuted. It's one of my favorite moments ever. And Excalibur's like, oh my God, look who it is. He's amazing. He's in J Japan. And Shivani's, oh my God, it's amazing. This is great. Jim Ross's like, who the hell is that? <laughs> and that's what the commentary is. Taz is fantastic on commentary. And. He brings out the best, I think, in both Excalibur in a funny way and even in Jim Ross. And I thought Kevin Kelly really classed up the place, but it's probably too much to ask that Kevin Kelly leave New Japan and get hired full time to be an AEW lead commentator. But I think there's a problem in commentary. and It's been there for a while. I think for some people, it's a barrier of entry. And I know other people don't want to hear that. But I think Shivani and Jim Ross and Excalibur don't work as a trio 
I don't think there's any reason why it needs to be three people in the booth. It should be Taz and a second person, if you're going to use Taz in that role. And if it's going to be Excalibur, I'd rather it not be, but they love Excalibur. And he's the Young Bucks guy, so as long as the Bucks are there, Excalibur is going to be completely protected. Yeah, we know that we're stuck with the guy. He's the shits. But you met Taz with Kevin Kelly. Then you've got basically Joe Rogan and Mike Goldberg. You've got an ex-jock that's well-spoken and and has some back, even though Rogan was a stand-up comic, he's, you know, he's trained and he's the manly man, but you've got somebody with that can provide some analysis and you have the straight man announcer that can sell the product. But with, you know, you've got the fucking idiot outlaw goof with a sock on his face. Tony, who's, he's wearing an earring. He's my age. He's older than me. And he's trying to laugh at all these joking kids. And it just comes off stupid. But I agree, you know, if they just, an experienced ex-jock, ex-wrestler, color guy that's well-spoken and a straight play-by-play announcer that can be your salesman that's not a gimmick that's what you need on a wrestling show and they've got 15 announcers and they shuffle them around in all kinds of combinations and they don't get to the root of the problem it's either their most of their announcers are either too amateur or too old that's it anyway so the first match on this program Now that you have seen it happen, can you explain to me, Brian, what Jane by Jefferson Starship has in any way to do with the mascot of this program, our little dog pockets? Uh, Nothing other than he used it on the indies. And I just want to clarify to people that thought I was saying that Jefferson Starship was the death of the San Francisco sound. I was saying Orange Cassidy using Jefferson Starship (laughs) was the death of the San Francisco sound. Not the other way. And no, it's just, it's a song that he must like. He picked it to be his indie theme music and now he'll be happy every time he comes out. So Tony Khan spent money because this is not free. You can't just play it. It's commercial music. He spent money on a song for this thing that has nothing to do with the fucking jack-off that they're playing it for to come out to the ring, but it just he liked it. He used it on outlaw shows. So let's just spend however many thousands of dollars to let this goof play a song that has no correlation to him whatsoever. That's basically what where we're at here, right? Tony is very open to licensing music. <sighs> for He licensed punks. Great. Punk's the biggest draw and the biggest star in the company. And and I'll even go with old Ruby Soho and Lars Fredrickson's a wrestling fan. You think Grace Slick is a fan of pockets? I don't think Grace Slick watches wrestling. I think she just paints, actually. Yeah. Very, so, very smart woman. I miss her on TV. She probably she probably didn't give him a deal then, because she's not a fan. It just and Muffin Top Taylor is back with the with the pudding gang. So Anyway, that was the first match. Pockets with his pudding gang against the other page with Dan Lambert, and these two embarrassed the profession on national television for 16 minutes. But then it got better. Christian Cage. is Now that we can't see Danielson and we can't see Punk, is he going to have to be our new favorite promo? 
I put on Twitter, this is two weeks in, this is the best work he's done in his entire career. He was always talented. He was always really good. He got a chance in TNA after he left WWE to be the top guy. To me, nothing ever really felt great. Nothing ever took. This is fucking great. He's doing the best work he's ever done. Two weeks in, I'm loving this. Well, and and I was there in TNA, but I've got the PTSD from that era. He was a babyface there primarily, was he That's not? That's right. That's right. Well, that was now we know that was a drastic mistake, like a lot of others they made. He comes out dressed like a diehard villain, just fucking crazy. He's booed out of the arena before he could even speak. He's been asked to apologize for his remarks about Jungle Boy's family and especially his father last week being dead, so he he apologizes. I'm sorry your entire family isn't dead, except for your mom, and then Mouse call me. What a fuck this fight. And then, of course, he requested a match, but he never said it was for me. And the music played. The only thing I didn't like about this interview was it wasn't long enough. I can sit there and watch him calmly and self-assuredly and confidently just throw off little heelish asides and just verbally eviscerate those people. And is he's throwing it off naturally. And it just, it's exceptional. And then, obviously, request a match. It wasn't for me. They play the music. Here comes Dino Douche. And I'm thinking, can even Christian at this point make anything out of this slug? Okay, if he's a stooge servant, maybe we can accept it. But here's where they made a mistake. And this is, again, not only inexperienced booker and lack of quality control probably from producers that may or may not be able to tell Tony what the fuck. They booked Dino Douche against Serpentico. Serpentico is, would this be charitable saying he's five foot six and 150 pounds, Brian? Is that charitable or is that about from your eyeballing it? Is that about right? I think he may be slightly bigger, maybe 170 and five, nine, if I had to guess. Okay, still, the the dinosaur is big, and he's tall, and he's jacked up. What they, I'm sure, trying to read their minds, and my God, talk about going slumming. What they thought was, well, if we put Dino in with this little guy, then he'll look even bigger, and it's going to be a squash match, and he's just going to beat him, and blah, 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 and that'll get heat on Dino. Here's the problem why that's exactly incorrect. Because this guy was so not only ridiculous looking to be put against Dino, but also from the time that the dinosaur got in the ring, did you see Serpentico doing the fake acting, I'm scared, comedy acting scared? Oh, putting his hands up, oh no, and, and cringing. When you put a monster heel against an underneath baby face that looks good, that he doesn't have to be big. You want the big guy to be wrestling a little a littler guy, but not going to comedy small. You get a nice, good-looking kid, underneath wrestler, baby face, with a nice smile and a decent physique. And when the monster heel beats that kid up and squashes him, It gets the point across. It makes the monster look like a monster, makes him look like a big badass. 
like he can do some damage. And people might have a little bit of sympathy for the guy that's getting his ass kicked. But when you put a monster heel against a little visually comedic jack-off like that that's not only visually looks like comedy, but is acting funny, like, I'm not really scared, but I'm going to act that way. And then the monster heel starts doing big moves to this little guy and throwing him around. That's another reason they put him in there, because he can throw this guy far. But then you get the fans behind your heel. Because, yes, this shit looks impressive. Look how far he threw him. Look how easy he picked him up. Those are cool moves. We don't care about this fucking goof wearing the mask because it's all comedy to begin with. Because elsewise, they wouldn't put a guy at 150 pounds in there. If it was serious, he wouldn't be acting funny. It wouldn't be another masked guy when you're pushing the masked star and you put him in with a masked jobber. Now you got two masked guys. The whole thing was visually and or psychologically set up to make the people cheer for the heel and his cool moves instead of being mad at him and booing him because he was abusing someone of lesser physical capability. It looked funny visually. It was performed comedically. Therefore, the people cheered the guy you're trying to get them to boo. But if a normal, athletic-looking, underneath guy that was trying to fight the bigger guy and unfortunately just got the shit kicked out of him because the bigger guy's the monster heel, that's not funny-looking, and you get the desired response from the people's minds subliminally. How can something that simple be over these people's fucking heads? Well, who's, anyway. in the, who's in the back that's going to say that? That's how. Quick win with the snare trap. And then he chokeslammed the guy on the floor, flat of his back on the floor. With their injury rate, it was necessary to get further heat on Dino now that he's more popular than ever because he beat up this little comedy guy. It was necessary to chokeslam that guy on the floor too. So hopefully we'll never see the guy again. Then we know the choke slam on the floor was deadly. Beyond the actual things like that or the bad acting in the match, what do you think about the idea of Luchasaurus coming out there, new outfit, dark outfit, and now he's a heel with Christian Cage? I like it. I like the fact that Cage has a big monster stooge that will do his dirty work. I don't know how that they are going to explain that Cage is able to persuade Dino to do all these things now and turn on the, his back on his friend Jungle Boy. Maybe they're, they're uh, are they holding him? Are they holding Dino by a contract like they were holding Wardlow? He's got to perform against his will. Who knows? If the guy would listen, we've established that the dinosaur is a fucking mental idiot because he's got all the tools in the world to be a top star in wrestling, stuff you can't teach, the size, the physique, the genetics, but mentally he's fucking five years old and he's got to do his backflips. He doesn't understand that just because you can do shit doesn't mean you should. And his matches always go south. If Cage can 
take him under his wing and he will listen to Christian Cage. Christian Cage could probably teach him how he ought to be working. But I don't think there's no evidence that this guy listens to anything because he's been at one point or another in every developmental program and ain't made it yet. So I like the concept. I just, I just, I'm not convinced they're doing it with the right guy. It'll be interesting to see also what they do when Jungle Boy actually reappears. I don't know how long he'll be out, but obviously he wasn't there at all this week. And then I guess he'll go through Luchasaurus to get the Christian Cage? Oh, boy. Talk about going around your elbow to get to your wrist. But... I hope he doesn't show up with Marco. Can you imagine? <laughs> no, I, th- I think they... Didn't they get away from him it, it, just because he was an insult to the profession and an embarrassment to television and a, just a whiny little piece of shit on camera? They never actually ran him off until people accused him of being Im- improper with the opposite sex or something, did they? I don't think that had anything to do with it, and they never even ran him off. They just stopped calling. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, maybe I'm sorry. It was the other guy that forced his brother. I think it did something right. It was the other guy that was his brother did something. And it was the other outlaw guy that forced dwarf dong sucker to suck the dong in the ring and uh, whatever. So there was Tony Schiavone with an interview in the back with Wardlow and Scorpio Sky. And we left him off the list. Scorpio Sky is injured, too. He hasn't wrestled in over a month. He's got some kind of injury, even though he's still the TV champion. And again, I want to reiterate, they should have had Wardlow squash him in L.A. for the TV title the night after the MJF match, or the Dynamite after the MJF match. Right, but they didn't. And now they did a promo face-to-face where Tony promised her, said that they had agreed to no physicality. So now they have had so many constant one right after another physical attacks in the backstage interviews that they have to differentiate the interviews now by saying you guys have promised you won't fight in this one (sighs) you've done something way too much when you have to start a segment by telling people that they're not going to see an angle and then they talk to each other and they want to fight, and Wardlow wasn't bad here. But then Scorpio Sky says, okay, for the TV title next week in a street fight. They can't just have a match. Now, he's got, is this the first time they've ever wrestled each other? It has to be, right? Well, I don't know, because Scorpio Sky used to be a babyface, but I just don't remember any interaction between the but two But Wardlow hasn't wrestled that often on AEW television. No, he hasn't. So I'm saying I'm pretty sure that, it, I mean, they may have wrestled somewhere in Oshkosh, Wisconsin at the fucking farm center. But I mean, on television, they've never had a match before, and their first match is not only going to be for the title, but it's going to be a street fight. For what reason? The reason to have another no DQ match, lazy booking. Well, well, let me ask you, though, before you declare it lazy booking, if Scorpio Sky is indeed injured to the point where he can't work a regular match, but they want to have Wardlow go over him for the belt one way or another instead of just awarding him the belt or another interim belt, uh-huh. would this be a way around that? Okay. If I want to get the belt on Wardlow and Scorpio Sky is injured, 
Am I going to have Wardlow fucking surprise Scorpio Sky possibly due to some inadvertent distraction by his putts manager Dan Lambert at the improper time and Wardlow does one move and beats him? Or am I going to send the guy that's injured out to have a 10-minute street fight and still get beat? (laughs) Yeah, you may have a point. (laughs) What the fuck? He's hurt. So let's not have him have a regular match. Let's put him in a street fight. That way we can cover up the fact that he's injured when he's getting hit with garbage cans and put through tables. They don't know how to have a walk and talk street fight in this company. Everything that they do is going to have risk of injury. So next week's a street fight. Hey, let me ask you this too, because it looks like I'm going to guess Wardlow is going to go over Scorpio Sky and win this TV belt. And I don't know what else you do with Scorpio Sky right now. Ethan Page, I feel like every single time we've seen him on TV lately, he's been losing. And losing to Miro is one thing. He lost to Orange Cassidy on a body slam on this episode. Clearly, he's not right now in their plans in any way. Would you consider at this point getting rid of Lambert? Because he's not bringing anything to the table. And I think the AEW fans are sick of him. Well, it's. <sighs> It's run its course because it never developed, really. You know, he was saying at the start, the people hated him because he was saying the same shit that I said, which is saying the same shit that all wrestling fans that have been alive for longer than 10 years say, which is this shit doesn't make any sense. And it looks like a bunch of children playing with each other. That's not any epiphany that somebody would have had after serious study. You look at it and you think that. For any fans of actual wrestling, the way it was for 120 years, this is an insult. Most of the shit that goes on on this, it's either an insult or a head scratch. So Lambert started out saying that, and naturally, all the people in the building that paid to see this shit don't want to hear that they got shitty taste. So they boo him. But then, it, within weeks, it became... Instead of a guy who was showing up and saying what he legitimately felt, remember we talked about it. Lambert even did interviews on websites saying, yes, well, I actually really believe some of the things I say on this television program, which totally killed the gimmick for anybody that saw that, because the only reason to have him doing it is if he really felt that way and you wanted people to think that. If he comes out and says, I'm just saying this shit because I'm being a heel, well, Fuck you, then I'm smart to your deal. And yes, he did mean some of the shit because it's an observation that you can't deny when you look at it. But it but he they didn't they didn't give him any credibility, his guys any credibility. They just they kept doing the same thing over and over after he'd already exposed that he was. And then he didn't really mean it, and he worked for the company. And he, you know, and then it's just been the same thing, only not even really as pointed. And he started writing shit down and memorizing it. And then they put him with questionable fucking talent of various kinds. It was supposed to be a shooter group. So he puts in Paige and Sky in with the shooters. Even if they can shoot, that's not their fucking gimmicks. Nobody believes that. And then he gets, you know, the green MMA women. Ty Conti gets a ton of heat with that bitch face, but 
did we discover she's one of the ones that can't work? I can't even remember. Paige Van Zandt was great to get heat until we saw her try to do something in the ring. So I just, I think Lambert's, it, it's just, it's like everything else, but maybe even more so with the booking. It's all over the place and it, it never came together as a reason why all these people would be together on the same side, interacting, whatever the fuck. That's what I think. That's just me. <sighs> but you know who was next, Brian? Do you remember? Was it the FTR match? It was Max Caster and the Guns. Can you give me a beat? You know what? Hold on. Hold on. I got one of my things over here. That's fine. You only got one of your things over there? I keep both of my things with me. No, I don't like that. That's the control voice from The Outer Limits. I don't like that. Nope. There you go. No. That's a beat. All right, I'll go back to that one. Hold on. That's a beat. Yo, listen. Wait, 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 wait. wait. We, I didn't know we settled on the beat. No. All right, I'll go back to the one you like. Sounds Hold like on. my first ex-wife. <laughs> Number Johnny Five? Hold on. Was this what you liked? Yeah. Yo, listen. Acclaimed and the guns, we don't rap with no undertones. We about to beat the shit out of a juggalo. Danhausen's a lightweight. How you gonna cheer a white guy doing whiteface? Embarrass my brothers again. We gonna make you drink all the tap water in Flint. Send your ass to the trash, boys. This is what you get for calling out the ass boys. And then we get some of this. <laughs> Who says rap ain't music? We just did it right there. What do you think? So, of the, before we move on from the rap, which yeah. you just recited, what do you think of Max Caster's rap this week? I liked it. I, he's growing on me. He's obviously trying, right? And... The thing is with this combination, because I get because Bowens is injured too, although they screwed that up here shortly. We'll talk about it in a second. The ass boys I love in the ring, and they're kicking ass as as a tag team, but we haven't really heard a lot of them talk yet. And Caster is so comfortable on the microphone and he's doing this shit. So he's kind of like the talk and they're the work, and I think they're a little bit farther advanced than his in ring and his verbal is a little farther advanced than theirs. So they're doing good together, but so naturally they'll split them up next week. Well, I'm sure they will. Cause they've already teased it, except whose side is their father on? You think that Billy is going to turn on his boys and go with Caster and Bowens. Uh, so this match was Max Caster and the ass boys against Danhausen and FTR. Because apparently the ass boys have been having problems with Danhausen and they challenged Danhausen. So Danhausen comes out and does the promo, which if he was hosting a local horror movie theater, that'd be great. Or if he's doing 
some other type of show business. But as I mentioned before, from the first time I heard his first promo, I think this guy's funny and I never want to see him wrestle because then I'll hate him. Because now that you put it in a wrestling context, what the flying French fried titty fuck is going on here? This, this is the first match I've seen, right? And you made me watch it. Well, first of all, I didn't make you watch anything. You asked me to watch it because, well, it's FTR. Tony Khan made you watch it. He's the one who booked it. Don't blame me. You talk about don't skip FTR and the ass boys. Just Danhausen's not in it much. Okay, okay, let's be honest. I did say to you, don't skip this match just because you see Danhausen. Don't let Danhausen's involvement and whatever spell he has put on you dissuade you from seeing everyone else who shines in this match. All right. So Danhausen did a promo and brought out FTR, and I wrote then, this is like a an expensive rock and roll fantasy camp where an amateur gets to duet with Robert Plant. Just Danhausen teaming with FTR in all seriousness, and we'll get to the worst insult later on. So, in my opinion, the gun boys, Austin and Colton, have the potential to be the best in-ring heel tag team in the business in a few years. They work hard. They get it. They're very animated, and when they smooth out and get a little more muscle memory on their experience, they're going to drop about the the 10% of the animation that makes them look a little awkward, and the, the rest of the animation is welcome because nobody else does it anymore. But they don't just stand up and wander into something. They fucking charge into it. They stagger. They fucking do the drunk cell, whatever the fuck. They're working their ass off. When they get a little smoother, they're going to gear that back about 10%. They're going to be awesome. And they got, and obviously FTR is flawless in most everything that they do. They go to the break getting some heat on Danhausen, and they come back from the break, and Danhausen is trying to quote-unquote wrestle. And it has still never been explained, has it? Not only what this fucking guy's deal is, but why, if this guy is allowed to wrestle in AEW, why can't anybody else off the street come in? Why? Because he has no physique, he's got no size, he doesn't look in any way intimidating, they have have told us nothing about how he may look weird, but he's secretly trained with Gene LaBelle and, you know, fucking judo. It's just a guy that looks like a normal fucking guy with his face painted wearing a gimmick that's being allowed to get in the ring and wrestle with professional athletes. And there's no explanation for it. And if he can do it, why can't anybody do it? And well, and actually, from looking at this television program and their roster, maybe I'm the one that's wrong. Anybody can do it. So at at one point, one of the ass boys, I can't remember who it was, actually set it up for Danhausen tag Dax as a hot tag instead of just laying there and letting Danhausen tag. He actually put something into it. But then Dax and Cash both made a comeback on both gun boys while referee Aubrey was sitting there. It, it just went into a double comeback. It wasn't even a 
Dax made a single comeback, both bump both heels a time or two, shoots one off, hits a false finish cover, the other heel makes a save, brings cash in. They just jumped in and decided to do multiple German suplexes on the heels. At the same time, referee had no problem with it. <sighs> this is what I was so... They just waste everything. Danhausen signals he's going to go for the go-to-sleep. Punk's move. But Billy Gunn draws the referee, and Bowens, who's been in a wheelchair now for, what, two months on the program, because he's really been hurt. Legitimately. His knee, I believe. So he gets out of the wheelchair, slides in the ring, stands up with the crutch, and swings it and hits his own man instead, or his own partner, his own his own side, and Danhausen covers him and gets the one of the guns and gets the one, two, three. So they wasted Bowens getting out of the chair. If they were going to, you could have done something with that to at least let these guys cheat and win once. But instead, he gets out of the chair and fucks up and his team still loses. So now he's just a complete idiot. And you've got Danhausen teamed up with FTR, which again... You know, let's throw fucking a Fozzie roadie in on stage with the Rolling Stones. And he's the one that gets the fucking pin. Not the tag team champions of every organization in the world, except this one. And then, because the guns and the acclaimed lost, they got mad and started pissing at each other and Billy Gunn shoves his own boys and takes the acclaimed side. So now are we going to see a family feud between the, are they going to screw up everything we enjoy? What'd you see here? Well, let me first say it's really nice to see considering what's happened the last several years from the moment that music hits and you see cash and Dax walk out. There's a confidence on their face that they haven't had. They know they're made right now. The fans anointed them. The Young Bucks were pushed. Other tag teams have been pushed. The fans decided on their own that FTR deserves better. And look at what's happening right now. The Gun Club, as I believe their Christian name is, have impressed me. You called it out first before I ever saw it, but now I've been paying extra attention. Forgive me for not knowing the names, and I'm not trying to insult them. But Austin the, and Colton. I was going to say the littler one. Is that Austin? Well, Austin is a little bit farther advanced than Colton. He may be the older, elder one. I don't know, though. And Colton's the one you said reminds you of Kurt Hennig? No, I think it was Austin. Oh, was but it Austin? Okay, okay. I wasn't sure. I was trying to watch the match and figure that out, but I was going to say Austin was actually really impressive. I thought Colton was the one you were uh, bragging about, raving about. They're both good. Max Caster has more personality and is so clever on the mic. I agree that he hasn't really shined in the ring as of yet. But he very seldom, he doesn't have a lot of single matches, and he, in these six-mans, he's very seldom in. And the other thing is, every one of those people that came out, and I'll talk about Danhausen in a second, including Danhausen, though, but every one of those people that came out, Max Caster, as soon as that music hit, that place was, that place exploded. And they were, they were ready for it, they were into it. When FTR's music hits, place goes completely nuts. FTR is getting bigger pops than the Bucks ever have in AEW. Think about that. 
Again, that's on their own. That's the fans. Well, it's not a surprise to me because if you show somebody something long enough, they can determine which is the quality and which is the cheap knockoff. And that's what's happened. That's why at, at the start of AEW, when I said, what in the world is Tony Khan doing signing all of these indie guys with limited potential to long-term contracts because they have a fad audience? And the fad audience don't stay with you. They're, they weren't legitimately over. They had a fad audience, and that's wearing out now that the one note of all of their jokes is old. Whether it's the guy with his hands in his pockets, the guy that's spraying the cold spray, or the fucking same moves they were doing when they were in their 20s, uh, regardless of who the particular indie darling was that Tony couldn't get enough of, people are tired of that shit because it's just that. It's when you saw it on the indies once every six months and maybe in your local rec center, you might've got a kick out of it. But every week on television, it gets old and they don't know how to do anything else. Well, what I was going to say about Danhausen is, and I understand there are a lot of fans who really like him, and I like the personality I don't like him as an in-ring wrestler participating at this level. When I say at this level, teaming up with FTR, who are the best in-ring tag team in the fucking business, against a young emerging tag team, against someone who's showing a lot of potential. Or on national television at all, because it just makes the wrestling business look even sillier than we've managed to make ourselves look already. Well, again, a month ago, FTR were teaming with CM Punk on Dynamite. And now they're teaming with Danhausen. With that said, and I'm not justifying it in any way that's going to change your mind on anything if the goal was let's finish up whatever the hell they've done with Danhausen and the ass boys which i don't know what that is then i guess this finished that up you got him on tv people got to see him i don't know if it was his hometown or something and we'll move past it i mean but the first hour of the show you had orange cassidy and then you had Danhausen. i think it's the first time they've ever both been in a match on the same show on AEW. And we can hope it'll be the last. So coming up next, people we would like to see, or at least one, Jay Lethal was with Sanjay Dutt and old Satnam Singe, and they're promoting the Ring of Honor pay-per-view that's taking place on July 23rd. (laughs) They are having a Ring of Honor pay-per-view, even though Ring of Honor has no television program, no talent roster, and all of its championships are basically now held by people in AEW. But they're going to do a Ring of Honor pay-per-view. Three weeks after the one they just did with the fucking New Japan guys that nobody understood. To be fair, and I'm not, again, justifying any of this, but one of the clips we did not play from the media scrum, Tony Khan addressed the fact that this is kind of the beginning of a relaunch of Ring of Honor, and he is actively working on trying to find them a television partner right now. So... Well, good. And when they do find a television partner and start doing a television program, then they should do pay-per-views that they can promote on their television program. But since they can't promote anything on this television program besides chaos, how are they going to be able to keep it straight with people? Oh, now, that was a New Japan and AEW pay-per-view last week, but this one in Three weeks is going to be a Ring of Honor pay-per-view, even though all the AEW guys are going to be on it because Ring of Honor doesn't technically exist. 
But that's why we've all got 15 championships, so there'll be enough belts to defend to go around. What the? There is no focus here on anything. And where is Samoa Joe? Jay Lethal's been saying, when are you going to come back? When are you going to show up? When are you going to fight me? Has there been any explanation for why the baby face that's being trashed and verbally talked about and diminished is not coming to fight this guy? If he's injured, we understand. If, if he's in jail, we understand. If he's fully capable of an ambulatory and able to move around, and why don't he come and fucking find this guy and shut him up? How do you bury Samoa Joe? by just saying he won't come and fight me and there's no rebuttal and there's no other side and the announcers aren't saying well you know very well joe would be here if not for what but we get a 30 second pre-tape with jay lethal and the following match after we get 30 seconds of jay lethal talking instead of seeing jay lethal wrestling we get to see jane cargill against layla gray Layla, Leela, I guess she's not on future. It was Layla. Layla. Layla! You're the shits. So Jane and Stokely Carmichael did a promo, and Stokely can talk his ass off. I'd like to actually... Stokely Hathaway. Stop calling him Stokely Carmichael. There you go. All right. Malcolm, Malcolm Hathaway. He's much better for Jane than Mark Sterling was. And I'd like to see him actually maybe with some top guys. We could actually see more of whether he can do anything or not. But they did a promo, and then Jane beat Layla. And then two more girls ran in. It was Ember Moon and Chris Statlander. But they beat up Jane and one of her baddies. But then Layla Gray, the girl that Jane just beat, came back in and jumped the baby faces that were helping her. <laughs> and then the baby faces got the shit kicked out of him, including by the girl that Jane just kicked the shit out of that turned around and attacked the people that were trying to help her after. You see where I'm going with this? Yeah. What happened here? What happened was Jade beat Layla Gray. And then I guess Layla Gray, because they kind of put her over when Malcolm, not Malcolm, Stokely got on a microphone after the match. He kind of put her over, and I guess it was kind of her audition, like the Blackpool Combat Club with Eula, Eula Weeder. With Wheeler Yuta. <laughs> <laughs> and they, uh, they accepted her, but before they had a chance to officially anoint her, Chris Statlander and Athena ran in there and caused chaos, and then she ended Athena, up joining with them. I don't know how much I need her. Let me just say also, I think this is a great move. Layla Gray is one of the best-looking women I've ever seen in the professional wrestling business. So good move signing her, Tony. All righty. Well, now we had Jim Ross's entrance, Boomer Sooner, because it's the second hour of the show and time for our main event. At, but they did, did you see the Rampage plug for Friday night? The big match on Rampage Friday night? Uh, it's the Bucks match, right? Well, there's one of those, but the big match. I don't the remember. one we're all waiting for. I don't remember. The Royal Rampage. A 20-man, two-ring battle royal, and the winner gets a shot at John Moxley. Another battle royal a week after the last battle royal to determine who the fuck was going to whatever the fuck they were doing. 
But now this is this. Uh, well, to be fair, when was the last time you saw a two ring battle royal? Well, I just saw a two ring match last night. That pretty much all I want to see of that. But I guess they had to do it because they already had two rings set up. <sighs> another battle royal for another title shot and blah, blah, blah. So they lower the cage. They do the blood and guts package. They give the rules. Smiley Roberts herniates himself on the introductions. Here comes the Jericho appreciators. Was that an homage to a clockwork orange? Where did the red outfits and the ridiculous hats come from? It came from the ridiculous mind of Chris Jericho, who seems to be blessed with the worst ideas anyone's ever thought of, and then he convinces other people who are susceptible to bad ideas to go along with them, and then usually after the fact they realize, why the fuck did I do this? But it it looked a little clockwork orange-ish with the outfits. Because I haven't seen that movie in 40 fucking years. Yeah, they like, were white, didn't they? No, I think it was orange. Maybe, I don't know. It was a clockwork but, orange, but the droogs well, were white. Well, a clockwork orange to me is like 2001 A Space Odyssey. I haven't seen either one of those movies in 40 years, and I tried to watch 2001 a couple of years ago and realized why I haven't seen it in 40 years, because that's the worst fucking movie it was ever made. And the soundtrack and the sound effects bothered Harley. She would actually get a, every time that the spaceship noise would, she'd get up and walk out of the room and snort. So anyway, so it was six on six. I thought the war games, blood and guts supposed to be five on five, but somehow they got six in here, right? Cause it was Jericho and Sammy Guevara and Garcia and Hager and Mac Daddy Daddy Mac and Cool Hand Luke against Moxley and Claudio Castagnoli and what was it? What was his name? Yuli Wheeler? Yuli Wheeler. And <laughs> Santana and Ortiz and I've missed one. Yuli Wheeler. I did it again. Wheeler Yuta, Moxley, yeah. Claudio, Santana, Ortiz, Eddie Kingston. Kingston. So six on six. And they started it out, and obviously the original war games rules until everybody's in, you can't nobody can win, and then the the actual match beyond, as Dusty called it, starts. So Claudio starts with Sammy Guevara and the first fucking move, bless him. They try to do the deal where Claudio was going to go through the ropes from one side of the, from one ring to the other, and Sammy was going to leap over, and Sammy leaped over and landed on Claudio's back and just and was up there for about five or six seconds, and Claudio just had to backdrop him. But Claudio opened this thing hot, and what a fucking talent. And the difference is visual. You can see it in just the way he carries himself and everything he does. It's not, it, there's no wasted motion. He's poised. He can move around. Claudio, and he's a real man. He's got size. He's strong as a bull. I like Sammy as a, as a heel. As We've talked about this from the time we first saw him. Great slappable face. Incredible attitude. It, we found out, obviously, that he's a blithering simpleton, and he's going to paralyze himself and have a, not nearly the career he could have if he stopped doing all this bullshit, but if he had somebody guiding him and he'd listen to him 
he could be a red hot fucking heel for a long period of time in this business. He has that guy, Chris Jericho. He's been guiding him and he listens to him and look at where he is today. Yeah. So they went to a break. And when they came back, um, old Wheeler got in and he did multiple German suplexes. So now every, this was like the third match on this two hour program where everybody grabs somebody by the waist and does six or seven German suplexes in a row. And then it, early in the match where everybody's got to withstand that and just go on. So they at least made this make sense as it, when the odds are even, the baby faces should be kicking ass. And when the heels have the advantage, the heels should be kicking the baby faces ass. So they pretty much stuck to that. It was at that point, it was Claudio and Sammy and Yuta and whoever. Here comes Hager. And he does a face-off with Claudio, and that that would be good, except Claudio's great, and Hager is the drizzling shits. And he has no face, no oomph. His work is sloppy. Eh, but the they got the heels got the heat on the baby faces. And then here comes Moxley in with a chair. So now obviously the door is locked, but every was it five minutes they were doing the time period? The door gets open, somebody gets to go in, so Moxley brings in a chair. He just can't help himself. He just cannot help himself. He thinks... You know what? What he does is wrestling. I completely agree with what you're saying right now, and it was around this point in time I said to myself, I bet you he's going to have thumbtacks. I knew it. I just knew it because oh, of, of the stupidity we see in all of his matches. I knew there would be thumbtacks. So I, I made the notes. Moxley does Moxley stuff. Garcia ends up bleeding. And then all of the Blackpool Combat Club guys get all the heels. And you know the thing they do where they sit the heels down and they, they're behind them and they're elbowing in the pocket of the neck where they can't possibly hurt anybody anyway so they could actually lay it in if they wanted to? If you laid it in, that's right. Yeah, well, go back. I dare anybody. I will give anybody that goes back and watches this and says that this is not the fakest bunch of shit you've ever seen on a fucking wrestling program. I will give you $500. Moxley, were they were not even good enough to be called fake elbows. He was just making the motion while the, the heel was sitting there in front of him, not even bothering to sell it because he wasn't touching him. And then Cool Hand Luke gets in, and because the baby faces are on top, he starts running away from everybody. And the next one in was Ortiz. And now he's got the panda bear makeup, which is from what movie is that from that everybody's told me? Dead now? Presidents. Dead Presidents. Well, he looks like a goddamn dead Puerto Rican. Because he's fucking, he's got a white face, black circles around his eyes, and now that they've shaved his head, he painted his head red. So he got his bald head painted red and he's wearing panda makeup and it looked ridiculous. And they go to another break and they come back and here comes Mac Daddy and now he brings a chair in and now the heels start getting their heat again but they show a VTR videotape replay by the way for folks wondering what that the VTR of during the break, Moxley dumped out a bag of broken glass. 
And even if it was gimmick sugar glass, people don't know that. So how fucking ignorant and stupid can a human being be? If I'm sitting there watching a television program, a wrestling match, and somebody dumps out a bunch of broken glass, I said, well, that is the stupidest thing I've ever seen, and that guy's a complete idiot. Because I know wrestling's a work because they tell me constantly, but now they got broken glass in there that don't work with anybody, so now they're just idiots. And what is this? Is this the goddamn the, the, the cockfight down the street? Are we going in a barn to watch chickens with razor blades on their fucking feet fight each other? How unsavory can this be? Now they're rolling around in broken glass. And then he pile drives one of the heels on the broken glass and he gets his juice that way. Of course, that wasn't the finish because the match hasn't even really started yet. You can't win it. Everybody's not in yet. If Moxley worked in a carnival, he'd be the one asking to have the geek job. Broken glass, and, and the thumbtacks are coming up. It makes wrestling and wrestlers look like the worst kind of trash, filth people. Stupid, ignorant, trash, filth people. Well, beyond and, that, even if you don't want to use that argument, we've seen it all too many times. The thumbtacks, I get you'll get an initial pop as soon as you open the mysterious black bag. No one knows what it is until we empty the thumbtacks. Everyone knows what it is, and they'll still pop when you empty the thumbtacks. And then it becomes a spot we've seen way too often to mean yeah. anything. Yeah, over and over, constantly. Stupid. And how you... And, and here's the thing. There's people in the match that have to fall and take bumps in this ring on these thumbtacks. And I don't know. Maybe things have changed now in today's modern wrestling. But I guarantee you, if you'd have went in the locker room of WrestleMania 10 in Madison Square Garden or Starcade 86 in the Omni or Greensboro, and you said, I need 12 guys to go out and work in a ring filled with thumbtacks. Raise your hands. You wouldn't have got a goddamn soul. Because they'd be going, what? What? You said what? You want us to do what? How fucking stupid is that? So Moxley was bleeding and cool Luke was bleeding and Santana comes in with not only a baseball bat wrapped in barbed wire, but they handed a table in too. And at that point, I said, how many hats can this hat wear? The ultimate gimmick match. Two rings. A steel cage with a roof around both of them. No disqualification. No time limit. Though to win the match, your opponents have to be Disc discapacitated. So now we also need barbed wire, baseball bats, thumbtacks, broken glass, tables, chairs, and also we're going to go up and fight on the top. So, but anyway, Santana got in, was in there for about a minute and a half, gave Garcia a rock bottom, a rock bottom, and his left knee buckled, and he went down selling, and we never saw him again. I think they took him out. I heard from people that were there that for at least a long time, if not the remainder of the match, he was kind of down on the ground talking, or at least down towards the uh, corner of the ring talking to the referees. Well, at least he had something to do to keep busy while everybody else was fucking themselves up. But now this guy's maybe hurt, and for he did a rock bottom. 
And that's the point. Shit can happen no matter what you're doing, even if it's safe shit or simple shit. And here these morons are diving off everything in sight and constantly having surgery, being operated on, being paralyzed, being fucking out of action, whatever the case. So then Moxley started stabbing a guy in the head with chopsticks. Chopsticks. He actually had them in his back pocket so he could stab the guy in the head with chopsticks. When's the last time you brought chopsticks as a weapon to a street fight, Brian? That's one weapon I haven't used. It's just they come up, they did this shit in the garbage match circuit where they think, what can we use that are common household objects that people know will hurt and we're really hurting ourselves, but it'll get a pop. One of these garbage promotions a couple years ago said they had a match with Legos in the ring because everybody knows how bad it hurts when you step on a Lego. So it's like children, children in romper room are now providing the foreign objects for these goddamn badass wrestlers. So there was a nice close-up of Mac Daddy fake choking Moxley with the barbed wire bat. Mac Daddy had it near his throat, near Moxley's throat, and he was just sitting there listening because Moxley, while he was being choked, was talking to him, telling him what to fucking do. Nice close-up there. Then Jericho came in with another bat, another baseball bat. Hit people with it twice, fake-looking shots, and then somebody kicked him and he dropped it. And then finally, the last guy, it had to be the last guy because Kingston wanted to get a hold of Jericho, so they milked that till the end. Here come Kingston in with a kendo stick. And now, everybody was in the ring. Everybody's already bleeding. They've got multiple foreign objects in the ring. They've got 23 minutes left on the air. And I'm thinking, what in the flying fuck? Kingston has a bottle of rubbing alcohol. But somehow they got it away from him or he dropped it or whatever. It fell out of the ring. And then Ty Conti was trying to shove the bottle of rubbing alcohol back through the, the cyclone fence cage. But did you see? It was just too big. It wouldn't go through the, the fucking link chain link but she managed to spring a leak in the side of the fucking bottle so as she's trying to shove it rubbing alcohol is shooting out toward the person i think it was jericho that she's trying to shove it into so chairs sticks table rubbing alcohol they power bombed hager through the table and then wheeler useless dumps out ten thousand thumbtacks and they peeled the canvas and the padding back on one of the rings so one ring has thumbtacks in it. So if you've got a lick of sense, you ain't going to take a bump. And the other ring, half of the canvas and the padding is rolled up and the boards are exposed. So if you've got a lick of sense, you ain't going to take a bump. So now, if if anybody does that, somebody else besides Santana is going to get hurt because it's all sloppy and crowded and filled with furniture. And they go to another break. <clears throat> and they come back and they got 15 minutes left on the air and the morons are taking bumps in thousands of thumbtacks. And I just thought they did all this. They promoted this blood and guts and they're doing all this to themselves and they're hurting themselves. 
And the viewership, they went back from 700 and something thousand people to the million people that they started out with when Punk came back fucking nine months ago and has been eroded away since then. This is the best. This is the best. They they are pretty much literally setting each other on fire and disemboweling each other with sharp implements to get a million people to watch this show which is what they get every time they hot shot. And in three weeks, they'll be back to 800,000. But what are they going to do? What would they have to promise or advertise to get a million and a half? We're going to televise a live public disemboweling. And somebody who picks the lucky number will get the fucking entrails delivered to them in a fucking box a week after the match. Jericho did the fire extinguisher spot. Another thing, that's not a heel spot. That's a babyface spot. Dip shit. I've told you this before a few weeks ago, the last time you did it. He just likes to hear people cheer for him. If a heel uses the fire extinguisher, the people pop on it and cheer and laugh because they like it. Because it's odd looking and it makes a big fucking pshh. That's why the babyface as the last resort to get out from under the heel, is the one who finds and uses the fire extinguisher because that gets the people cheering and up and happy for the start of his comeback. Then Ty Conti tried to do something, and here came, I thought her name was Ruby Soho, but somebody called her Ruby Riot. I must have been dreaming. Taz accidentally said that. And uh, (laughs) also in the same match, Jim Ross kept calling Claudio Cesaro, so it was happening all over the place. Um, so Jericho then goes to the top of the cage and Kingston follows him and they fight on top. Glad to see they're doing something that's never been done before. Then Sammy goes to the top of the cage and all of this took forever. It was not transpiring quickly. Then Kingston throws Sammy off the top of the cage. Brian, did you freeze frame that long shot for a second? I did not. I watched it, though, because all of a sudden I'm like, what is that giant box? There you go. Down at ringside, because I did not see that there before. They had shot around this all night, but the people in the building couldn't have avoided seeing it. It was almost as big as the ring. At ringside, next to one of the two rings that they were doing this business in, was a giant triple-sized, double-height, black-sheet-covered table with nobody sitting at it. Just a, a production table, but completely empty, covered up with a sheet, three times the size and twice the height as normal. And when Kingston threw Sammy off the top, Sammy just takes the dead man fall and go straight through that thing. It was a fucking airbag. Remember last year it was Jericho. Instead of blood and guts, they ought to called it cardboards and, and fucking airbags. That table, table, that structure, that apparatus was sitting there the whole night with the people in the building looking at it. And you had to know. Well, I mean, that 
Unless the, the only way they could have made it more obvious is if they'd drawn a bullseye on top of the fucking thing. For comparison, when Chris Jericho last year, or whatever, two years ago, landed on the crash pad, it was nowhere near as egregious as this. No, because this was an obvious thing that had no purpose. Taken up an entire section of front of, that would have been the front few rows of ringside. There was no equipment there. There's nobody sitting at it. There was no function for this area otherwise than to catch a body falling from 25 feet in the air. And that's what it did. And a 20-foot bump was a break spot. They just said, well, Sammy's dead. We'll be right back. Match goes on. So they come back, and Kingston and Jericho are still on top of the cage. It's been three minutes during the break. And the rest of the match may still be going on down down below. We don't know because it's being ignored. And then suddenly here comes Claudio climbs up to the top of the cage and saves Kingston. But Daddy Mac comes to the top of the cage. And Claudio finally grabs Jericho and gives him the big swing on the top. The people wanted to see the big swing. I did too. But the rest of this thing would not fucking end. Not end ever. At this point, I wrote, Ian Rotten should have promoted this match and paid the guys off in hot dogs and pain pills. <laughs> this is national television. There's mainstream name talent involved in this match. It's a big NBA building, and it looks like the worst combat zone wrestling horseshit that you would ever see on fucking Twitter. Insulting the wrestling business insulting the people that took the time to be talented in it. And that just because the booker is a mark that likes chaos, the owner, I should say, is a booker that or the owner likes chaos is a mark. They have to give it to him. No matter whether it does anything for the business's public relations or not. So anyway, Finally, on the top of the cage, Daddy Mac tapped out to Claudio because Kingston had Jericho and Claudio had Daddy Mac and Daddy Mac tapped out and Kingston was mad because he thought that he had got Jericho to tap out. And all I can say is thank fuck that Brian Danielson wasn't in this. Not only might he have gotten further injured, but it just would have been an insult to a guy of talent like that to be involved in shit that any fucking garbage goof that works full-time at a Valvoline station could fucking do on an indie show. So then, explain this to me. I think I know the reason. Every one of the babyface team then climbs to the top of the cage to celebrate the victory. Moxley could barely make it. Claudio had to drag him up. And Jericho was still laying there. And all of his hated enemies, including Kingston, were just sitting there looking at him five, six feet away, ignoring him. And then Jericho and Daddy Mac kind of crawl over to the edge of the cage to give the babyfaces room to lift their hands. But still, there was all the babyfaces just like taking a curtain call. Okay, the, the play is over now. Thank you guys for coming. We've had a wonderful time. And there's the fucking guy that started this whole thing that they wanted to tear limb from limb. Ten feet away from him on the top of the cage, they don't even touch him or look at him. You know why? I guarantee I know why. 
Chris Jericho got up there and figured out he couldn't climb back down. That's the only explanation. Any fucking heel would have got out of there if he could when he saw that he was trapped with the baby faces. Any baby face, I think Kingston actually did. It looked like he talked to him once. But any baby face would have gone, get the fuck out of here so we don't have to throw you off the cage too. But he, he just laid there. I guarantee you, Jericho realized at that moment that he couldn't climb off that cage without killing himself. Why else wouldn't he leave? I don't know. I think that's the only reason anyone could come up with. So this was... <laughs> Maybe he was afraid to go down because Santana was still down there. The guy with one leg. I think I'd be scared of being up on a 25-foot fucking cage with five guys than on the floor with one guy with a bad leg. By the way, is this a crutch for Jericho? This is the second straight blood and guts match Jericho climbs to the top of the cage. Well, yeah, because that way all the attention can be on him. He can get all the spotlight and everybody else working hard in the match can be forgotten about. Two blood and guts matches, two people that go off the top of the roof of the cage. So now we should just expect it, I guess. Yeah, well, it's, it's a thing that they do now. But, uh, again, free television, fucking it, 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 an hour worth of this stuff. No War Games match ever went an hour, ever. For the same reason, because people would get sick and tired of seeing this chaos, and it becomes unbelievable. And the War Games matches, they weren't allowed to bring in any inanimate object that they so desired because they were already in a gimmick match. They didn't need to gimmick it. But, the, you know, the, it's embarrassing that people think when they, when anybody that happens to be flipping by, as they say, civilians, outsiders, mainstream folks, people not in the wrestling bubble, it's embarrassing to me that they think that this is what wrestling is. And they watch this and they go, well, pff, we don't want to have our kids watching this shit or we don't want to watch this shit or look at how stupid those guys are. They're all a bunch of drug addicts and morons. And you watch this program, you do not get any alternate viewpoint. You don't get the, God, look at the talent that Brian Danielson, the athletic ability he's showing. Or look at the verbal capacity of a CM Punk or what you get a bunch of guys fake fighting and barbed wire and thumbtacks and it's the most unsavory disgusting bunch of bullshit that I can imagine why anybody would want people to think about wrestling like this I can't I can't get it and that's my thoughts on blood and guts I love the blood and I even love the guts if people can believe that the two guys are actively trying to separate each other from their blood and guts. But when it's a fucking mud show, phony looking, obviously fake, contrived, stupid, nonsensical, illogical bunch of mayhem makes everybody in our business look like a goddamn idiot. And that's all I got to say about it. All right, well, that was AEW Blood and Guts. This is my show. I forgot, isn't it? It is. 
Well, what are we going to do on your show this week coming up? Oh, I think is there another pay-per-view? No, there isn't. Thank God. I don't think there is. I mean, now that you say that, I'm questioning it. But we're going to have a good time. Questions, maybe some songs, maybe some games, some laughter, and a whole lot more. Whatever How come means. on your program we get the songs and the games and the laughs and the jokes and the stories? And on my show, we have to talk about this shit. Well, you're you know, sometimes rather down on things. Me? Come on. That's not possible. I'm always positive. I'm always positive. Coronet's very positive. I knew I'd be positive. Oh, positive bad? What do you, how can positive be bad? That was a funny story for all the people who remember it. I'm positive that we're going to have a good time on the drive-thru in a few days. All right, well, I'll, I'll be the, the positive-negative man. That was my favorite episode of The Avengers, the positive-negative man. Second only, second only to the Cybernauts. Maybe third to the return of the Cybernauts. You know, we ought to just get the whole box set of The Avengers and watch that. You don't already have it? I have, se- I have a couple of seasons, but I don't have an entire box set. Because now there was, you know, do you want the entire box set of all of the Avengers, or do you just want the Avengers when Diana Rigg shows up? Because a lot of our fans in the British Isles will remember that uh, John Steed's original partner was a man played by Ian Hendry. And it was was very, uh, very primitive program at that point. Then... When Diana Rigg, Emma Peel came along, they got some budget. And then that was the golden era. And then Tara King tried her best, but she wasn't Emma Peel. And that was all she wrote. The Avengers. You know, I bet a lot of the kids thought I was talking about the Marvel superhero group, The Avengers. But instead, I was talking about John Steed and Emma Peel, that every nine-year-old boy in America would have kicked their parents off the edge of a cliff just to snuggle up to Emma Peel and smell her cat suit. Have you ever smelled Emma Peel's cat suit, Brian? I was never offered the opportunity to, no. Well, I'll tell you what, she was really something. When she said to me, she said, little Jimmy. Would you like to come over here and sniff my cat suit? Now she was sitting there with she was sitting there with this big cat on her lap and she said, "Would you like to pet my pussy?" I said, "I will if you move that damn cat." Is this one of those times where you're not exactly sure how to wrap up the show? How to wrap up the freak? Want me to wrap this program? Okay, we're done. Fuck it. Goodbye everybody. That's it. Wednesday nights I get to stay up late Which Kenny Omega while I masturbate Hey mom, I need to watch the show Meltzer says I'm in the key demo Meltzer says I'm in the key demo My mom's basement. I steal her Wi-Fi, not pay no rent. AEW's cool. We've got indie stars drop back from wrestling school. Our children are at the top of the curve.
shit everyone should get Well, everyone except Jim Cornette Wednesday nights I get to stay up late Which Kenny Omega while I masturbate Who needs women for hanging round in bars When you can watch the Bucks get seven stars When you can watch the Bucks turn seven stars Dynamite's the word Best ever tag team division Haven't you heard? We've got Jericho Orange Cassidy and Michael Rio Like Tony, I get fancy booking A title tournament, now we're cooking And I can wait to hear what Cody has to say When Marco's stunned Goes all the way Wednesday nights I get to stay up late Watch Kenny Omega while I masturbate Hey mom, don't come in Go away, I'm watching wrestling Go away, I'm watching wrestling oh, This is wrestling heaven don't listen to Corny, he hasn't been relevant since 87. He thinks that Luchasaurus can't work a lick, or that Bobby Eaton could hold the candle driver Matt Warner. He wants to cut up our heroes with a rusty fishing knife, or get them in the hot tub to play Scott the Submarine with him and his wife. And no, Mom, I'm not bitter. This has nothing to do with Jim blocking me on Twitter. And now, here comes Miro. Wearing pajamas like me, he's my hero The young bucks could shoot on Buzz Sawyer Make Brock Lesnar take a Canadian destroyer Don't come in, Mom! Don't come in! Are you touching yourself again? No. Did you change the Wi-Fi password? Oh, no! Wednesday nights I get to stay up late Watch Kenny Omega while I masturbate Hey mom, I need to watch this show Elter says I'm in the key demo I'm 39, I'm in the key demo I'm a single male, I'm in the key demo oh, Elter says I'm in the key demo